Welcome to Atwood Unleashed 128. I'm Stephen Knight, and we've got an amazing set of guests for you this evening. Loads of big topics uh, from UFOs to diversity, equity, and inclusion, all sorts of things to uh, mental illness and psychopathy, the absolute gamut of big topics, essentially. So say hello in the chat if you can see and hear me. And make sure to get plenty of questions in as well that I can put to your guest, uh, the guests rather. So tonight we'll have five guests. Uh, we'll be recording the first hour on YouTube and the second and third hours exclusively on Locals. Uh, Locals is free. You can find the link to that uh, under this video. So make sure you head over there, catch the second half of the show. Um, all you need to do is click on that link and you can watch it for free. Uh, I'll be hosting the entire three hour plus show tonight. Uh, Sean's away. As I stressed last week, I've definitely not murdered him and stole his show. <laughs> but hopefully he should be back uh, next week uh, as well. So going to uh, introduce you to our guest for the evening. Uh, so from 7 till 7.30, kicking off this show will be our first great guest, which is Garrett Graff, who is a distinguished magazine journalist internationally best-selling historian and regular TV commentator and producer, having spent nearly two decades covering politics, technology, and national security, and is, a recognize, and is recognized today as one of the nation's most prolific and wide-ranging journalists and historians. Uh, he's written several books during his career, and tonight we'll be focusing on UFO, the inside story of the US government's search for alien life. I always love our UFO chats on this show. Uh, as you may know, very skeptic, very much a scully to everyone's Mulder. But I actually want to believe, I actually want to be convinced that there is alien life out there and there are UFOs visiting us, not turning up in the South of America and probing rednecks. It's always been a bit weird. Uh, from 7.30 till 8, I'll be speaking to TV commentator and writer Anna McGovern. Uh, she's appeared on media outlets such as Talk TV, GB News and TNT Radio. Her specialist areas include politics, culture, traditional conservatism and current affairs. Uh, during tonight's interview, interview, she'll be discussing woke culture at universities where she will be speaking about some of her personal experiences at university, along with how cancel culture in the academia has spiralled out of control. That's something that's been on my my wheelhouse for the longest time. I imagine you all know, but the DEI stands for Diversity, Equity and Inclusion, I believe. And on the face of it, this sounds great to most of us. Who doesn't want a bit of diversity? bit of equity, bit of inclusion. Sounds absolutely wonderful. However, when you tend to scratch the surface in academia, in our institutions, you often find it's used basically to silence people, shut down dissenting opinions, impose orthodoxy on certain topics. You'll find a lot of these people are all for diversity of everything other than diversity of thought, which is quite possibly the most important aspects of diversity, I would say. You'll, you very rarely find conservative views uh, in academia, uh, certainly vocal conservative views, seems to all be a very left-leaning liberal progressive. And I'm a very left-leaning liberal progressive, 
uh, that just so happens to dislike a lot of what's going on on the left. So it'll be interesting to speak to Anna, see what her perspective is, as I, I believe she's a conservative. Uh, and from eight o'clock, we'll be switching over to local. So make sure you've clicked on that link and you're ready for the second half of the show. Uh, I'll be speaking to aspiring journalist, women's right activist, free thinker and ex-Muslim Nuria Khan. Uh, she'll be joining us for a full hour. Really looking forward to this one. Uh, she will be telling us her harrowing story about leaving Islam and the grooming gang scandal. That is front page news at the moment in the UK. A lot going on here. Uh, for sure. I think the ex-Muslim movement, for me personally, is probably one of the most important movements on planet Earth right now, especially women at the forefront of it. They seem to get the roughest deal from conservative Islamic countries and culture. And when they kind of stand up and vocally oppose it, they seem to pay the biggest price. So I'm always very impressed by people willing to speak publicly about this this sort of thing. So I'll be getting as much from her as possible. Uh, finding out her background, uh, what she does now, what her views are on the current situation. Getting some insight on that grooming gang aspect should be great because it's often separated from religion and a lot of people would claim it's closely linked to religion. Uh, so we'll be getting an insider's perspective um, in a sense. And from 9 o'clock to 9.30... Following on from Niria Khan, we will be joined by Stephen R.C. Hicks, who is Professor of Philosophy at Rockford University, Illinois. is uh, the Executive Director for the Center for Ethics and Entrepreneurship and Senior Scholar at the Atlas Society. Can't believe I got out entrepreneurship and tripped over the word Atlas. Uh, but there you go. Uh, he's written six books, including books on explaining postmodernism, Nietzsche and the Nazis, the Art of Reasoning, Readings for Logical Analysis, Entrepreneurial Living, Liberalism, Pros and Cons, and Eight Philosophies of Education. A lot of big stuff there. Uh, but the main focus of our conversation tonight will be how Nisha taught us to embrace suffering and how we can learn from it now. Interesting. Uh, is it Nisha or is it Nietzsche? That's the question. Put your preferred pronunciation in the comments for me. Uh, and then I'll probably just go with majority rules. And from 9.30 till 10, our final guest of the evening will be forensic psychiatrist, author, YouTuber, and longtime friend of the channel, Dr. Shahomdas. I always trip over Shaham's name. Uh, he'll be returning to add his expert take on the recent Nottingham stabbings. Uh, he will be giving us his thoughts on the not guilty reason by insanity plea, how he thinks the appeal will go, what par paranoid schizophrenia is, and how it is presented in this specific case. Uh, we'll find out whether Shaham thinks the defense, defense presented is fair given that the family want the accused to be prosecuted for murder and the gaps in the system the accused fell through. Yeah, it's a big case. This in the UK at the moment, a lot going on. Family of the victims, um, very unhappy with the ruling. Uh, as you imagine, they would be a, a really horrible murder in the UK. Uh, number of innocent lives, just wrong place, wrong time, came you know in the path of this deeply disturbed and violent individual. Uh, I think he stabbed one of them at, at least 20 times in a sort of frenzied attack. And then uh, 
stole a car and ploughed it into a number of pedestrians, which very fortunately were, you know, did survive. Uh, they were injured, but they they did survive. Uh, so Shahom really knows his stuff. I've interviewed him a few times on this uh, channel. I've interviewed him on my own channel. So it'll be really good to get his sort of forensic psychologist perspective on the mindset, because I think a lot of people, and I can I have empathy with the family here. I think a lot of people want a rational answer. They want a why, don't they? They want to know what could possibly have motivated an individual to do something like this. And, you know, a lot of the times murders and attacks are motivated by ideology or revenge or potentially money or sort of an honor killing. Sometimes it's just completely and totally related to mental illness and impossible for people to understand in any rational sense and i think i don't know i don't know if that makes it worse i don't know if there is a worse or better version of this but i think i can imagine it can be extremely frustrating for the people involved not to get a how and a why in any any sort of sense that would bring closure so i'll be very pleased to get his professional perspective on this uh casbear mm, dr das i i imagine that's a reference to his intellect would I be right? And not the fact that he's a snappy dresser and considerably handsome. But I could be wrong. Um, so, very soon, hopefully, we will be sure we bring in our first guest uh, for the show. Uh, and we will be talking... Oh, Garrett, nice, nice to see you. How are you doing? Uh, pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's, it's our pleasure. Thank you very much. Uh, before we get into your book and what takes up a lot of your time, maybe you can just explain to our uh, audience, uh, listeners, viewers, what it is you do, what keeps you busy. So I'm a journalist and historian. Um, I live in Burlington, Vermont in the U.S. And uh, my latest book is about the U.S. government's hunt for UFOs and uh, alien life here and out there. I love this topic. I've always loved this topic. It's always fascinated me since I was a child, teenager, into adulthood. Somewhere along the line, though, I got very cynical and skeptical, and I'm not in the camp of believing that UFOs have visited Earth or aliens have, you know, we've got aliens or aliens have visited Earth. I would love it to be true. I'd love to be convinced on that. I'm just not there yet. Where where are you on this before we start? Are you somebody who's kind of all in with the UFO phenomenon and extraterrestrials? Uh, do you take a more skeptical approach? What's your perspective? So to me, uh, I'm I, I'm sort of a, a weird person to have written a book like this because I am not someone who uh, is a lifelong ufologist. Uh, a uh, you know, I was not raised on Star Trek or the X-Files. Um, <laughs> I, I come at this subject as someone who has covered national security in the United States for 20 years and has written, uh, you know, for most of my career about counterterrorism and the Cold War and the presidency and cybersecurity and things like that. And what I noticed... Um, really in the last six or seven years was a change in the way that people in Washington talked about UFOs. Um, you know, what now the, the U.S. government at least tries to call UAPs, unidentified anomalous phenomenon. And anomalous, I always said aerial, seems to, this, this seems uh, to so, change. Yes. So it started out as unidentified aerial phenomenon. 
and then uh, they renamed it uh, in the last couple of years to Unidentified Anomalous Phenomenon, which um, you know is all an effort to destigmatize and de decrease the giggle factor of <laughs> talking about UFOs, while also making really two important shifts in the perspective of what this topic is meant to cover, which is um, a, not all of these things are physical objects. Um, you know, some of them are going to be meteorological, astronomical, atmospheric phenomenon. And then also not all of them are flying. Um, and that one of the things that the Pentagon has gotten very interested in in the last couple of years are USOs. Um, unidentified submerged objects or unidentified swimming objects. Um, and so the the UAP umbrella is now meant to encompass sort of things that are not flying and things that are also not things. Um, and so that shift has taken place really, I think, in the United States since 2017 when you saw this blockbuster reporting by the New York Times and Politico, where I used to work, um, talking about both an ongoing uh, Pentagon interest in UFOs that had been heretofore unacknowledged, and then also reporting a series of encounters that Navy pilots, Navy aviators, had had with objects that they could not explain, that were to them at least UFOs, and objects that moved in ways that they did not think objects could move, and you know appeared to be technologies that, in their mind, outclassed anything that the United States possessed. And in the wake of that reporting, you began to see. Congress, I think, take a much more serious interest in UFOs and UAPs. Uh, and you began to see serious people talking seriously in Washington about UFOs. And that was really, for me, the moment that got me interested in this subject as someone who covers national security. And that there was one very specific moment where John Brennan, who... Uh, had just wrapped up the better part of a decade as the CIA director and the White House Homeland Security Advisor, gave an interview in December 2020 to another G DC journalist named Tyler Cowen, where he said, in essence, in very tortured syntax, uh, there's stuff out there that we don't know what it is, and it puzzles me. And some might say that this phenomenon could constitute a new form of life. And that's a really startling statement for someone like John Brennan to give. Uh, it, it, and struck me because I figure there can't be that many things that puzzle someone like John Brennan. You know, if John Brennan wakes up in the morning with a random question, he has access to all of the U.S. intelligence gathering apparatus and, and and you know basically all of the classified information that the U.S. has in its possession, and so for him to leave office after eight years atop the intelligence community and say, "Man, this UFO stuff is really puzzling," uh, felt to me like something that then was worthy of diving into a lot more. That's that's a really good answer, and I mean, when I when I hear this new found government 
interest or that certainly this public admission of you know taking it more seriously i tend to put my cynical and skeptical head on tend to assume they're very much concerned about perhaps foreign threats uh, you know technology things like that however is this kind of uh, very public uh, announcement of interest and hearings and things like that has this in a in a way kind of give uh, uh, a perceived air of legitimacy to sort of conspiracy theorists and and people who are really kind of fringe uh, advocates for you know ufo sighting extraterrestrials things like that yeah, I think part of the challenge is there's not one single answer to what UFOs are, right? That, that you know, as you said, some chunk of these things are going to end up being advanced adversary technology being tested against us. Um, you know, Chinese drones, Russian drones, Iranian drones. Um, you know, just this week there was a drone attack uh an, an iranian drone attack on a u.s base in jordan um that you know killed three american mm -hmm. servicemen um it, it, you know there's a lot that we don't understand about those technologies and and how they work and what their capabilities are at the same time you know some chunk of these things are our own government's secret development projects um you know a, a huge chunk of what the public thought were UFOs were in the 1950s were turned out to be the U-2 spy plane, um, which was a UFO. It was an unidentified flying object that if you were a commercial pilot flying across the Western United States and looked up and saw U-2, it didn't look like any plane that you'd ever seen. It was flying at an altitude that planes were not known to be able to fly at, at speeds planes were not known to fly. So yeah, it was a UFO. More recently, there's been the development of the SR-71, the uh, A-12 ox cart, the stealth bomber, the stealth fighter. There are presumably all sorts of development projects still underway that we don't know about uh, that, you know, will appear to the public at certain times to be UFOs. So part of the challenge in untangling the conspiracy theories around UFOs is Yes, the government covers up what it knows about public UFO sightings because some chunk of them are the government's own programs and some chunk of it are adversary technology being tested against us that we didn't want to tell our adversaries what we are able to detect and what we're not. You know, the government gets pretty squirrely when it begins to talk about what its sensor and radar capabilities are. Yeah, now, I mean, sorry, go ahead, please. Uh, now, you know, to me, the much more interesting question in there is what does the government consider UFO sightings? Um, and, you know, what are the sightings that puzzle the government? Um, and what we have seen since 2017 is that that number is sort of somewhere between two and five percent of, you know, public UFO sightings that the Pentagon itself is unable to resolve as a known technology or known uh, phenomenon, and that it has uncovered some interesting things as part of that. One of the things that the Pentagon has come out and said is that as part of its more recent UAP studies, it has found a heretofore unknown transmedium Chinese drone, which is to say a 
Chinese drone that comes out of the water and transitions to flight, which is a technology that we did not understand that China had prior to the military really diving into these new questions around UAPs. That's a good answer. And that, that kind of ties me into my next question, I suppose, in a number of ways. In, you know, one of them being the the government's reluctance to uh, you know declassify things because in a way that would potentially reveal their own uh, capabilities and their own advanced technology but i suppose what was exciting for a lot of people not so long ago was the declassified videos that have been put out there of uh, i think one of them's called the tiktok uh, uap one's called the go faster video and what was interesting about these videos for to someone like me is previously ufo sighting videos are kind of fell into a number of categories of either blatant forgeries nothing really going on you know kind of, kind of blinking you'll miss it something or nothing these were you know prolonged physical objects observed and recorded and observed and recorded by sensitive uh, equipment and instruments and eyewitnesses of of a credible nature so i mean for me i mean this doesn't naturally or, you know, then then leading to therefore extraterrestrials or aliens. But we have something. There is something there. And I'm just wondering when you look at these things, uh, these things seem like a, a completely different level from what we've seen before in terms of UFO evidence. What What's your perception of these videos that are being touted now as absolute proof of uh, UAPs? Yeah. And and that is, you know, those videos were re what really helped change this whole conversation in, in 2017 and, and more recently uh, for all of the reasons that you just cited, that these were uh, encounters by credible witnesses backed up by instruments and recordings. Um, you know, the Pentagon has devoted a lot of resources to trying to figure out what some of these videos turn out to be. Um, and we don't know the extent of that work in terms of how, how much they have been able to detangle what some of these things might turn out to be. But I think it is all part and parcel of this shift where after, I think, decades of the military and government trying to wish away the existence of UAPs, uh, you know, now people are willing to say, yes, there's something here. We don't know what it is. Um, you know, it, and a big part of what my book was trying to do is explain and talk about how, you know, there are mysteries here worth solving, even if the answer isn't UF, uh, isn't extraterrestrials that, you know, in our mind, I think, uh, in the public consciousness, public imagination, UFO equals aliens. Uh, and I think that that is, you know, highly unlikely for a variety of reasons. But that's not to say that the answer to what UFOs will turn out to be is not also world-changing, transformative, and, you know, mind-altering in the way that we think about what the realities of the universe are. Okay, so at this point, I'm just going to remind people in the chat, if you want to get some questions in for Garrett, I'll put them to him. Thank you for Ray J for picking up on the fact I said TikTok instead of TikTok on that video. Yeah, nothing to do with TikTok. Uh, so I suppose then in researching this, this subject matter for your book, I mean, this is already... Um, 
a topic that's linked to government and national security and secrecy. I mean, how do you go about getting information enough to write something of note? Uh, obviously, I, I can imagine people aren't particularly forthcoming with the most juicy details when it comes to national security. Yeah, but what we have seen are uh, there's a lot that hadn't been put together over the years, which was what I was really trying to do. Um, a, there's a lot that's been declassified over the last 80 years. I mean, these programs in the United States date back now to the 1940s. Um, there's a lot that's come out of foreign governments. You know, France actually has a really tremendous UFO study program. Um, we better understand a lot of what transpired during the Cold War uh, now than we used to. Uh, and then a lot of this also doesn't necessarily have to rely only on government sources. Um, you know, a lot of this information involves public sightings and public witnesses and, um, you know, work by scientists in, in the public realm that have been uh, you know, at the cutting edge of this, um, you know, including J. Allen Hynek, who was the, uh, you know, lead government researcher on this subject for a quarter century. And then, you know, left government and wrote what is probably the definitive book on UFOs in the 1970s and came up with the whole nomenclature of close encounters of the first kind, second kind, and third kind, um, and, you know, led to the Steven Spielberg movie that uh, we we all know, in which J. Allen Hynek, uh, astronomer at Northeastern uh, uh, University, or Northwestern University, sorry, um, actually played his own bit part in. How, I mean, whenever you, whenever we're talking about advanced technology and threats to the Western world or specifically America that you've mentioned, you know, China, Iran, Russia, things like that. Uh, how, how much of a concern is it in terms of the power dynamic on the planet? If somebody manages to create technology that's so advanced that it can cross borders, create havoc and, and kind of return almost undetected. I mean, that, that's a, that's a kind of a game change of a sort of global dynamics, isn't it? Yeah, it's also one of those things where the the complexities of this internationally and, and geopolitically uh, are also a big part of why I am so skeptical of the most extreme versions of the government conspiracies. The, um, you know, the idea that the U.S. government has had meaningful contact with intelligent civilizations or non-human intelligences, NHIs, as, as people in the world call them. Um, and yet somehow that's only ever been a U.S. phenomenon seems unlikely to me. Um, and uh, that the idea that there is some cross-border conspiracy, you know, where multiple governments are all in on the action uh, you know, it seems even less believable to me. Um, but the, you know, the idea that the only flying saucers that have ever crashed in the world are the ones that fell in the United States, um, just totally coincidentally seems, uh, seems in many ways to me to give the lie to the rest of what, uh, the, the lie of the rest of the uh, underlying conspiracies that you'll see some people talk about.
Yeah, I think it's often sort of perpetuated in Hollywood, isn't it? It's all, there's always a UFO and, and a White House. Essentially, you never see never see UFO movies set in like Guam or anything. Um, right. So, um, I suppose then you said something earlier, which kind of reminded me of something. You were talking about advanced Chinese technology, I believe, perhaps a drone that was able to submerge itself uh, and you know go, go from air to sea. And I, if I'm not misremembering here, isn't that part of uh eyewitness testimony of one of these uh fighter pilots who got eyes on this kind of uh unidentified uh anomalous object or whatever the new nomenclature is didn't he say that he'd seen something that emerged from the sea and then disappeared yes uh you were right and these are not necessarily unrelated points um you know we uh you know there's reason to believe that uh some of these witnesses who have discussed uh, you know, transmedium uh, flight possibilities, you know, coming out of the ocean and, and turning to flight or going from flight into the ocean, um, you know, may very well be part of some of this cutting edge technology that the Pentagon is beginning to uncover uh, that, uh, you know, China or other adversaries uh, may possess. What did you, what was your perception of the whole kind of national security panic around Chinese balloons uh you know ostensibly the yeah. described as weather balloons in U u.s airspace and, and the response to that yeah so this is you know we talked about you know some chunk of ufos are uh are advanced adversary technology another chunk of ufos is just weird stuff floating around up there in the sky that we uh, do not pay attention to on a daily basis you know there's a lot of junk and science equipment and trash blowing around up there in the atmosphere that we just ignore. Um, and some of it from time to time presents as UFOs, um, you know, certainly to the public. And it turns out also if NORAD sets its radars a little bit differently, it starts picking up all sorts of balloons that it's not normally paying that much attention to. And, you know, in that moment, what we saw was the government panic and go up and use the world's most advanced fighter jet to shoot down these UFOs with quarter million dollar missiles. And, you know, one of the things we ended up shooting down was a hobbyist weather balloon from the Northern Illinois Balloon Brigade Meteorology Club. <laughs> I didn't um, even know, you know that. <laughs> which, you know, we, they had just put a weather balloon up there. It was floating around. No one was paying any attention to it. They didn't have to ask anyone's permission to do it. And, uh, you know, then, it, you know, we got scared by it and shot it down. So, you know, that again is part of this. UFOs are not going to be one thing. And there are, things that are puzzling to the public and puzzling to the government. And those don't always necessarily overlap. Okay. So King Kong's asked a question. I'm not sure if this is directed at you or me. I'm not even sure if it maps on to anything that we've said actually, but they've asked, how can you believe that throughout this whole universe, we are the only living species? Uh, that's insane. They've put, I mean, I don't, I don't even know if that is your opinion. I mean, do you... Do you... Yeah, I, I actually don't believe that. Um, no, I, I don't. I, uh, one of the things I, 
I talk about in the book is, you know, the book tries to weave together both the uh, the military's hunt for UFOs here and the evolving science and astronomy of the search for extraterrestrial intelligence out there um, across the rest of the universe. And to me, actually, one of the biggest revolutions of human knowledge and understanding of the last quarter century is the idea that the math is very much on the side of the aliens. Um, yeah. And that when, you know, as late as the 1990s, we did not understand that there was a single planet outside of our own solar system. And we now believe that more or less every star in the universe has planets and that a huge number of them, not necessarily a huge percentage, but a huge number uh, are potentially habitable that fall into what scientists call the Goldilocks zone, you know, not too hot, not too cold, um, uh, you know, capable of supporting water, capable of supporting an atmosphere, and that the number in you know rough orders of magnitude of um, uh, of habitable planets across the universe is somewhere around one sextillion. That's a billion trillion habitable planets, which is like a really tremendously strong indication that our universe probably actually teems with life and probably teems with intelligent life. Um, and, you know, where I remain doubtful is whether any of that life or intelligent life is in a position to be close enough that we will know, that we would have uh, meaningful contact with it, that we would be able to detect it. That um, and you know, I think part of that challenge is not just the, uh, uh, not just the vastness of interstellar space. You know, you're not just the the travel constraints that it would take to get from one habited one habited planet to another, um, but the very real possibility that we could be functionally alone right now. That you know, one of the weirdness, uh, uh, sort of weird thought experiments that, that I got into in this is, you know, the James Webb Space Telescope has shown us that there were stars and galaxies that began to form as little as 300 million years after the creation of the universe. We're a really young civilization on a pretty young planet in a pretty old universe. So it's possible that you could have had multi-billion year civilizations rise and fall across the period of the history of the universe and have had those civilizations come and go before our solar system even ever began to gather out of dust. We're about four and a half billion years old in a 14 billion year old universe. So, you know, there's somewhere on the order of about 11, 10 or 11 billion years that predate our solar system uh, that, you know, you could have had life rise and, uh, you know, potentially even multiple times 
uh, rise and fall across the the universe. That's a great answer, and I think I think our primate brains really struggle to hold on to uh, you know huge amounts of time and and scale and vastness. That fitting that in your head uh, can be very difficult for most people. I know it is is for me for sure. I mean, I I often wonder as well in terms of space travel. I I think it's fascinating, and I, I just think it's exciting, and I I'm very desperate to to find uh life out there i'd settle for like a fossilized microbe somewhere to be honest i don't need to see little green men or anything but where are you on the, the kind of vast amount of money time and effort that's put into the space race uh, not space race rather, but space exploration and things like that so it's you know it's it's mostly a private enterprise now of course but a lot of people will say that's an extraordinary amount of money and there's nothing out there what's the point where on earth we've got sort of you know housing crisis yeah you know lack of food people are starving people can't get fresh water things like that is, is there an ethical argument against space exploration uh, not to me in in part because i i actually think quite the opposite which is i don't think we take this particularly seriously at all um you know the the fraction of a fraction of the federal government that goes into space exploration is a rounding error on the totality of the um, the the federal budget. And when you begin to get into the efforts uh, to you know the, the so-called search for extraterrestrial intelligence, the SETI programs that. You know, that's even a fraction of a fraction of the overall space budget, um, most of which is uh, actually not government funded at all anymore um, and is uh, primarily private funded um, because, uh, you know, the federal government has uh, in the U.S. really struggled with that giggle factor. Um, you know, it, it is it is really hard to get federal funding for the search for extraterrestrial intelligence because it is so easy for that to be a punchline about looking for little green men um, when, you know, to me, it is, uh, you know, far less money than we spend on a lot more very speculative uh, projects. And, and, and by the way, you know, I think, one of the things that really stands out when you go through the 80-year history of UFOs uh, is that we have never taken the question of UFOs particularly seriously. You know, you look at the U.S. military's efforts to understand UFOs and, like, it's like a, generally like a two-person office, like sometimes like a five-person office. Um, you know, you talk about the, uh, you know, you 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 almost surely in the U.S. government at any one time have more military personnel devoted to buying toilets than you do <laughs> searching to understand what UFOs actually are. That's a great answer. Garrett, I've really enjoyed speaking to you. I'm definitely going to add your book to my, my reading list for sure because it's nice to get a really good balanced objective opinion on this uh where can people find out more of your work and where, where can people find your book most importantly so the book uh is you know wherever you like to get your books um uh, uh online ebooks audiobooks hardcover books in in your favorite local bookstore or online book retailer um and then my website is garrettgraff.com uh and i am vermont gmg my initials gmg 
uh, on all the various social media platforms. So thanks so much for having me. Thanks for speaking to us. It's been a pleasure. Fascinating topic. Can't get enough of the UFO chat, I'll be honest with you. Uh, we should be hopefully bringing in our next guest any moment. Be talking about... Oh, and then she's here. Anna, <laughs> nice to see you. How are you doing? Hello, I'm doing great, thank you. How are you? Yes, fine. Thanks for asking. I suspect you and I are probably going to agree on a lot uh, in the next half an hour. You'll probably just see me doing that, doing a lot Love of the nodding. <laughs> yeah, but maybe you could just uh, let our viewers and listeners know a little bit about you. What keeps you busy? So I'm I'm from the UK, but I'm actually living in Australia at the moment. I'm currently in Melbourne and I work for a media organisation called the Aussie Wire. Um, I'll be starting my show there in a few weeks time, which I'm very excited about. And a bit of my background, um, I've been involved in charity activism in the past, which is kind of how I segued into politics in the first place. Um, and now I do political commentary for several outlets and writing as well. That's great. I mean, first, a congratulations. That's a sweet move, isn't it, from the British climate to Australia? No regrets there, surely? Definitely not. And it's nice to have two summers as well, because we're right in the middle of our summer in Australia, which is winter in the UK, um, which was very disconcerting to me because I've already had a UK summer. And now I feel like I've just, you know, escaped all the winter. Now you're just making me angry. I'm going to have to move on very, very quickly. Well, I mean, I spend a lot of time banging the drum about sort of woke ideology and uh, sometimes it's termed progressive ideology. Far left, there's a lot of names for it, I suppose. It used to be, I suppose, political correctness, maybe. How would you define what woke is? I mean, it used to be a kind of term used to mean sort of socially aware, didn't it? Awake to injustices, things like that. It's become more of a pejorative in recent years, rightly so, in my opinion. But how would you describe what woke is? I think the the with describing what woke actually is it means you know it means different things to different people especially what your values are but I think a lot of institutions have actually captured that word for themselves um with how they're trying to take over many areas within society universities are a big one which we're getting into today um I think especially when as well um you've got a lot of these um you kind of I see this especially from the left as well um kind of left-wing institutions institutions and activists that are trying to virtually signal their way into displaying what a great person they are um, just because they feel a certain way which I think actually also leads to discriminating people with certain opinions when we're supposed to be a society that promotes free speech and has free conversations I think yeah for many people it's incredibly difficult and I think as well especially in the modern day society actually having the ability to speak your mind have free conversations conversations has almost been taken away because it now everything can pretty much cause offense to people now yeah that's a good answer yeah. and I suppose I mean from an institutional level in academia I mean I, I want to talk about the the sort of authorities and the hierarchy and how it's infected them but I think what fascinates me most is the actual students there seems to be an air of self-censorship amongst them or imposing speech codes banning books themselves without anyone else imposing it on them and for me I mean it's in contrast to when I was at university it was almost a an almost an embarrassing commitment to trying to be as edgy as possible and, and pushing boundaries to the to, to the point where it was you'd gone full circle uh, and now it seems like there's a lot of policing about what can be said what are the right opinions so so what's happening on the ground level then with young students where they're they're almost imposing this on themselves 
So I finished university this year um, after three years. And I felt like from, from my experience as well, um, I definitely felt um, discrimination on campus for having um, right wing conservative values. Um, so, for example, at the time when universities were going on strike and classes were called on and then called off without any notice, um, I was questioning this on the group chat. I was talking to a couple of people about some of the class cancellations and this is a group chat for my uh, department which is for English and then one person on that chat which has got over a hundred people um looked me up and found out that I was like involved as the president of the university's conservative society put it on the chat and then I got spammed by these people saying you know oh you you know basically calling me a terrible person for being involved with the conservatives at the time and I think that just goes to show that if you have different opinions you you know there are people out there that are going to get you tr try and get you cancelled for having them and for me personally I was then nervous afterwards to go on campus because in case I get recognized and people try and come up to me I've also known friends as well who've also equally faced discrimination for having certain political opinions and I think especially in universities as well where they're now more pandering to sort of left-wing ideology um, you're seeing this a lot more where um, you know if you've got a certain opinion it's not necessarily encouraged on campus and they want you to uh, from what I've seen from what I've experienced what I've heard from my friends as well that have gone through university it does feel very much like they want you to kind of learn and perpetuate this narrative going forward and I think especially as well when you've got university then trying to ban words as you had um, for example there was a university that banned the word trigger warning in case it might upset students so it's very it very much feels like that universities are trying to control our language as well whenever they can okay there's a lot to go out there so yes. <laughs> i suppose i mean like just keeping on this kind of discrimination discriminatory kind of attitude towards people with right-wing or conservative views i i see that i'm i'm a man of the left i'm just center left hanging in there kind of and I, but i spend a lot of my time kicking the far left because one it's fun yeah. uh two they deserve it and, and three you've got to kind of clean clean your own house a little bit but i, I break bread a lot of the time with people who would be on the right side of, of the, the center you know conservatives as well people like that i seem to find that people on the right now are more willing to uphold the principles of free speech than the left which is massively mm -hmm. disappointing to me but what, what what's happened to the point where right wing really in the public consciousness sorry maybe maybe institutions in the media has come to be synonymous with evil or bad i've noticed that i mean if there's a protest a far left protest and it's reported in the news it's just referred to as a protest if there's a mildly pro-free speech or anti-illegal immigration protest in the uk it's referred to as far right in the press straight away so so what's going on there with them terms so I think for when you use you know extreme terms like far left, far right, immediately that grabs attention. Um, when you're like scrolling on social media, looking at the news, if you see those kind of those words, and uh, I think for people it just grabs attention immediately. So I think that's why you've got a lot of media organisations, for example, kind of cap capitalising off those words um, for engagement, for gay, and I think as well with in terms of like having like right wing values, a lot of it is 
is associated with being this terrible evil person um actually a few weeks ago um i got a message out of the blue from someone i knew from years ago who just sent me this long paragraph that i hadn't spoken to for a very long time and she told me you need you know um i've looked you up on twitter i've seen your political you know i've seen where you stand politically and you should go to hell and she sent me this long paragraph about how terrible i am and uh, for having certain opinions and i think regardless whether you have left-wing values right-wing values what i think is that we should actually be encouraging people to come together and actually just have a sensible conversation you don't have to agree and i think that's what makes things so much more interesting and you get so much more done that way rather than just discriminating against someone or just suddenly making an opinion of their character making assumptions just because they have opinions that you don't like and you disagree with that's a good answer, isn't it? I mean, in terms of judging people on their opinions, their behaviours, what their that what their principles are. I mean, just to bring it back to the UK, uh, where it's freezing, you'll be happy to know. Uh, the Conservative Party. Now, my very guardian savvy leftist friends will tell me the Tories are far right fascist party obviously which is, is is ludicrous for sure but then people on the right will tell me the tories are barely even conservative anymore yeah. so, so what is your perception of the current tory government in terms of where it falls on the political scale I've heard this as well. Um, people who've got left-wing values are saying that the conservatives um, are actually the conservatives are like far right, and then you've got the right wingers who are also saying, you know, the conservatives are conservative enough, which is something that I um, sort of more lean towards myself. I think that what we've seen, especially over the last few years, is that the conservatives have made promises and just not kept them. And I think, especially coming out of the lockdowns as well and during the COVID pandemic, for many people, they completely lost trust over the Conservative Party and protecting the interests of the public and, ha you know, ha having their best interests at heart. I think for many people, after all of that, seeing the fallout and all the lies that came out from that, I think ever since people have been sceptical of the Conservative Party. And then we're now coming up to a general election. And I think that this will be reflected when it actually comes to the votes. I think people um, are fed up and they just don't trust that they have their best interests at heart anymore. That's a good answer. So, I mean, moving on to another pet political project of mine, which has consumed a lot of my time uh, over the last few years, and that's the uh, argument on gender, transgender rights specifically. And it seems to me like a lot of the um, the sort of trans right activism movement, the, the, the kooky stuff about, you know, sex being on a spectrum, the, you know, uh, trans women are women. That's just a, a statement of fact and there's no further questions to be had that seemed like a very fringe very online mentality a few years back and credit where credit's due to this movement they seem to have expanded at a rapid rate to where it's it's almost at every level now in terms of our institutions hr departments you know uh, media movies uh, politics and i'm just just getting your opinion on how important an issue of that that kind of subject matter will be at the next general election because I, I, I've been to a lot of like women's rights marches who are kind of uh, opposing a lot of the legislation in this area and I ask them who they're voting for next and they'll simply tell me a lot of them that they'll just vote for the person who can explain what a woman is which I think is quite charming but how big is this issue? 
So from where I am in Australia at the moment, in my local community, there was a bulletin posted of an LGBTQIA plus group for ages 12 to 25, oh. which I thought was quite a big, you know, age group to sort of host, <laughs> um, with by the local council's youth service. And all it said was, come and have fun, which I don't I don't personally know what that means in the context of a 12 to 25 year old group. Um, I think we're seeing this as well, just be taking over institutions in society. And I think for them, it's just to, again, kind of virtue signal, look, we care, this is what we're doing. Um, this is our, this is our bit with no understanding of the issue. And actually the harmful effects that it can have on children who are too young to understand these concepts. And I think a lot of it is being perpetuated on social media and TikTok as well with activists um, sort of taking that, um, you know, taking advantage of the fact that you've got very young children accessing those sites and can actually, you know, I've seen, for example, like tra um, transgender children um, educating other young children on like hormotherapy, you know, their transitional story. Um, one of my examples that I use as well is the Sacone Jolie family, where they were documenting their young child going from trans you know, go through kind of gender affirming um sort of therapy where he was transitioning from becoming a boy to a girl i, I believe about seven years old seven to eight years old uh, which i think is quite you know personally quite young to do things like that and I think that this is, again, something that we're seeing a lot more of. And I think as well, it's in the UK. So Kelly J. Keane, she hosts Let Women Speak events once a month in London, which actually gives women a platform to talk about these issues, how it has an impact on their lives. And a lot of it, are, are, you know, a lot of the people going are just mothers. Um, you know, they have children that at school, you know, this gender ideology is perpetuated to them, you know, in PSHE lessons. And they're constantly talking about it. And I think for, uh, for you know, on their side, they are concerned, you know, for some of their children who are quite young and then they now start questioning their gender. Whereas before, I don't know if they necessarily would have been doing that. So um, I, there are people in, you know, doing the right thing, giving women a platform to speak up on these issues. But at the same time, it is a huge problem that it's getting increasingly worse across society as well. That's a good answer. Yeah, I've been to a number of the Kelly J. Keene Let Women Speak events, uh, reporting, for, uh, video reporting there. And what I find is whenever, I'm, whenever I ask uh, one of the women there to speak to me and tell me what they think, they'll openly tell me very matter-of-factly and calmly. Whenever I try and speak to the other side, who are the counter-protesters, they will stonewall me completely stonewall there's a good pun i mean i i, I don't know if you saw a while back the, a, a clip of mine i think jk rowling retweeted it uh, in manchester my home city it's a couple of masked trans activists uh surrounding the emeline pankhurst statue and wouldn't let anyone get to it and i yeah. wandered over to ask them if they'd fancy a chat and just absolutely nothing so mm. what What's going on in their mind? Because I'm trying to understand the mentality of it. I mean, do these do these individuals genuinely think they are stopping the next Holocaust in some way? Do they genuinely believe with all righteous indignation that they are kind of standing uh, in front of a massive atrocity? So actually in Australia, in Sydney, um, I, well, as part of one of my first assignments, I went to one of the trans activist protests um, just to find out a bit more about their mentality and why they were promoting what they were promoting. And I went Did up. Did you say mentality then? A mentality. I thought mentality. you said mentality. I thought, I thought that's the best. <laughs> 
pun I've heard on this subject, and I'm going that to steal would, it. I'll take that. I'll take yeah, that. Yeah, you, you, you should. Yeah, you should have that. Yeah, mentality. <laughs> and I, I went up to them and I asked why they were there. Um, I said, for example, that I was there for the Aussie Wire. Try to find a bit more about this protest, why they're there, and you know what's their, you know, what's their perspective on all of this, and one of the trans activists actually started speaking to me and you know we're having a conversation about it before um i'd started the interview all of them were in a forced way quite nice to me um but then as i was conducting that interview a couple of them were behind him looking up the aussie wire and then they were shouting at him to get off camera and then they all started like grouping up against me um basically you know just making an assumption yet again about my character my values my opinions and what I was there to do just because I started a conversation on trans rights and I think for these trans activists they're hosting a public event they're hosting a protest where they're wanting to get their voice heard and in that I was trying to find out a bit more about why they were there give them a voice and they didn't want it when I gave them that opportunity just to have a sensible and polite conversation I think for them it's about promoting the ideology but they don't actually um they can't defend themselves if they're actually questioned or put under you know put under the spotlight about some of the values that they're promoting they don't want to have a conversation they just want to perpetuate it forward as much as they can so i mean i suppose we know how widespread and rampant this ideology is in the uk uh america for sure i've got no real handle on what's going on in australia what have you managed to gauge from your i suppose limited time there in terms of how far down the rabbit hole they are with woke ideologies are they are they uh do you think it's easier to save them at this point are they are they ahead or behind where you'd imagine the uk is well australia's a very big country and i think uh, kind of the lifestyle everyone's a lot more relaxed for a start um so everyone's a lot more laid back in terms of like especially i feel like in the uk there is definitely a culture of of a constant debate going on um the political scene there is very intense whereas australia especially with it being a, a much bigger country from what i've seen my experience it's a lot more dialed back but then quietly i have seen um kind of evidence where we're kind of woke ideology is again taking over these institutions universities for example that is one that is a major thing happening in australia at the moment i think for young people across the globe this is something that a lot of you know the younger generation are now experiencing because they're growing up with it basically shoved in their face when they go on their phone when they go to school when they go to university even at work now you can't escape it and I do wonder as well for the next generation of children who are going up in a world that is becoming more woke, how is that going to impact them in the future? And with some of the issues now that we're seeing, is that something that's only going to grow and become more of a conversation as we carry on? I think that this is something that we should, you know, it's definitely an issue that's growing and it's going to continue to keep doing that. Yeah. And a lot of people, I suppose, would look at this issue and say, uh, first of all, they'd look at the discourse on Twitter and say, well, that's not really representative of anyone. I mean, is it something like 16% of the UK are on Twitter? And that's kind of a small number. They would also say, if you obviously, if you put many of these questions to a democratic vote, the overwhelming majority of people would be able to conclusively tell you what a woman is and have some very yeah. strong opinions on transitioning young children, teaching pseudoscience in schools, things like that. However, these people seem to control our institutions. So how, how has it got to this point now where there's such a mismatch between the general... 
will of the people versus those that are in charge. Seems like a huge gulf. Yeah, especially as well, back on that uh, for a minute as well, when um, to define a woman, um, it will get you cancelled, which is just basic biology. This is something that I've never been able to understand. Um, you know, in the past, this was not something that we were having constant debate and conversation about. But if I was to say that a woman is an adult human female, uh, I would get cancelled by my, you know, some, some people that I know in my life, um, probably some workplaces as well and other institutions just because I stated basic biological facts which I think is absolutely ridiculous it's almost like in every area that institutions can they're just trying to control our language and I think that this is something that's only going to continue as well um, I think as well for you know the next generation how is this going to impact them what is the you know kind of as well when you're thinking about control of language um, what are they going to want to control next? How, what are we actually going to be allowed to say or not going to be allowed to say? Could we actually end up going to prison um, for state, you know, just stating some facts that we believe in, but then the mainstream might not? How did you navigate this at university then? So if you're in this stifling culture where your language is being policed, there's, there's kind of a social pressure to conform to certain, uh, you know, right on opinions. Obviously, you didn't do this. It has, has caused you issues in a number of ways. But how did you manage to avoid not falling in line? How did you remain a, a sort of independent thinker in that environment? I think in terms of university it is incredibly difficult for me. I've always been um, very strong and close to my values, and they're unchanging. Um, for me, I'm very, you know I like to listen to lots of different opinions, so I'm as best informed as I can and can come up with my own conclusions. But I think with um, especially what I've seen at universities, um, it's that same um, sort of free channel of speech and actually debating different ideologies. We're just not seeing that as much now at universities, which are um, disproportionate, uh, like, uh, you know, um, statistics show that, you know, you know, the universities, the faculty staff are left-leaning and that's kind of taking over the education side of universities as well. And I think for students, especially when you're coming into university for the first time, it is a very difficult situation to navigate, especially as you're, you know, try, you know, getting into grips with your course, you're sort of, you know, you're learning how to write from a school standard to actually university standard now. And you've got lecturers, you've got certain biases and opinions now actually marking your assessments as well. And I've I've heard stories as well where students have actually been penalized um, on their um, you know, on their essays, on their coursework for actually having opinions that disagree with the lecturer lecturer's own opinions as well so I think that this is something that is definitely taking over universities and I think what universities should actually be trying to do is giving a wide scope education like that like students are paying them to do and actually let students come to their own informed opinions and sort of, sort of, sort of conclusions of where they stand and where their values lie rather than universities trying to you know shove certain opinions down students throats that's a good answer. So, I mean, th this whole issue of diversity, uh, equity and inclusion, I suppose. I mean, is this, for, I mean, the, on the face of it to most people, this will sound like a wonderful thing. Why wouldn't you want more diversity, equity and, and inclusion? Sure, make sure everyone's got equal access to the opportunity or, you know, um, uh, you know, 
uh, you know, inclusion of, of all different backgrounds as well. I don't think anyone would kind of have an issue with that, except when you scratch the surface of what people are imposing there, it's not really them things that they're trying to push on us, is it? And I can't help but think there's a kind of underpinning self-hatred of the West that kind of yeah. permeates through this, uh, certainly in academia. I mean, how, how dangerous of a kind of mindset is that given you know, the wider implications of, you know, other cultures to, to have a really kind of self-loathing attitude to the West. So I think we, what we've seen with universities as well is that they've introduced a lot of um, race training into their uh, education as well to keep students informed, um, supposedly. So, for example, you've got the University of Cambridge and Oxford who that introduced unconscious bias and race workshops for freshers, educating them on white privilege and issues surrounding that as well. And we've seen other universities that have equally introduced similar kind of race training for students um to and also about white privilege and i think for as well with students coming in again to university for the first time uh, you're immediately lambasted with all of this kind of uh, you know, compulsory wor workshops and education and training and for students as well i i believe if i'm not incorrect um there is a disproportionate number of students um like for international students who are actually coming into university with lower grades than british students who are actually applying for the same universities um from recent statistics that came out and i think as well um this is something that's being constantly shoved down students' throats. And uh, it just it's woke virtue signaling again, just to prove what you know, how you know, how nice, how kind they are to all of their students, but it's not making any difference, I don't think. You're there to learn, and students should be getting what they're paying for, which I don't think they're necessarily getting value for money with you know what they're actually getting from when they finish their th three or four years at university. Yeah. And I suppose our experiences of the UK as well. I mean, it seems to me that racism still exists. I, I imagine it always will. Unfortunately, it just seems like a, a, a bug of human tribalism. But it seems like if you're going to plot progression in that area, it seems like the news is good. It seems like great progress has been made. And it felt to me like perhaps we was almost there at a good place. And we was at this kind of point where everyone sort of agreed that we shouldn't care about skin colour. And now it seems like the opposite yeah. lesson's been taught where it's really the only thing anyone should care about at all times. Now, how, how damaging is that to sort of race relations, in your opinion? Oh, massively. And I think this is sort of born from the Black Lives Matter movement um, that came out again for, um, during the pandemic as well. And with young people, you know, they're posting black boxes to, again, show, you know, I'm not racist. I've posted a black box, uh, which, again, is the massive virtue, biggest sort of virtue signal that I could possibly imagine. And I think after the Black Lives Movement, I think this is something that students are now becoming more uh, more um, kind of aware of and kind of almost indoctrinated with actually from what they're seeing online. And then universities are now, to, you know, kind of, you know, delving into that with their students. And you're seeing, you know, a, you know, a lot of like Black Lives Matter marches or Black Lives Matter months, for example, now being celebrated in these institutions. And yeah, for street, I, I think that this even like a few years ago before any of this came to place, I don't think that this is necessarily a conversation 
conversation that we were having as much and for you know now it's almost like um it it's almost like after the black lives matter movement came to the fray it's almost like racism is being more encouraged and we're more we're you know it's more like it, it feels from it from what i'm seeing that a lot of these activists are trying to cause segregation um from actually to from talking about what they're uh, you know what they're promoting and they're kind of doing the opposite of what they're trying to stand up to do a good answer so i suppose in the last two minutes we've got i'll just ask you a lot of people would probably look at us talking about this and accuse us both of being you know culture war warriors just kind of stoking this whole thing and being part of the problem how do we how do we defend ourselves against accusations that we're just the yin to the yang of this you know the the woke movement I think that you need people to actually speak up against this because if you don't, then it's just going to go on and on without question, without anyone actually trying to stand up and say no, which is why I think it's incredibly important that people do speak up if they can. And I think for these institutions that are taking advantage of it, they should be held to account by free speech activists and people who are standing up against this. So I don't think it's necessarily about trying to cause a culture war. It's about standing up against what we're already seeing happening and do you have much hope for the next generation who are coming into this stifling environment do you think they there may be a, a fear that they'll fall in line or do you think there may be an attitude of uh, rebellion because of the stifling atmosphere I actually think that we we will probably start to see more rebellion because I think people are now starting to wake up and just see the madness and that you, you're seeing more and more of this and it's just getting completely ridiculous. I think I think what we will end up seeing is I hope as well, you know, a group of people that actually just stand up and say, you know, no, I'm not tolerating this, and that we actually see more widespread resilience against uh, you know institutions that are taking over our language and trying to control. Um, kind of what we're you know what we're seeing in our society great point to end on anna well it was lovely speaking to you uh i really enjoyed it it's flown by but enjoy your son i suppose <laughs> i mean that from that I will. <laughs> <laughs> thank you lovely to speak to you all the best thank you. take care uh, great guest great topic uh so we will be switching over to locals very shortly uh so you need to click on the link in the box in the comments it's free to watch the second half of the show and i'm going to blow my nose now because i'm a snotty mess there we go good all in hd so yeah head over to locals for the second half of the show we're bringing in my next guest shortly and you don't want to miss it so do it now for god's sake people do it now noria how are you welcome Welcome to the show. Hi, Stephen. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's good to see you. We've—I don't think we—we've never met or spoke, have we? But I'm—I see your tweets all the time, and I like a lot yeah. of what I'm seeing. I don't believe we have spoken before. Yeah, but likewise. <laughs> cool. Okay, so maybe before we get into to your background and uh, what it is you do, maybe you can let people know uh, who you are and what keeps you busy. Uh, yeah, sure. So, hi everyone. My name is Nuria, and yeah, I'm um, a third generation British Pakistani. I'm currently working in the domestic violence sector. Um, but in my spare time, I run a YouTube channel where I kind of do activism to do with the ex-Muslim movement and kind of just raising awareness about Islam in general as an ideology. And 
its relevance in the 21st century, really, and especially its impact on women and children. Yeah, that's a great point. I think that's the first thing I was going to pick up on because I, I spend a lot of time criticizing Islam and Islamism, jihadism, whatever makes people feel most comfortable, I suppose. And uh, I, I get uh, quite a lot of accusations thrown my way for this. And I, and I, the, but then when I look at kind of the vitriol uh, and abuse that comes towards ex-Muslims, especially female ex-Muslims, that, that seems on a completely different level to me. So I suppose my first question is why i mean first i think it's very brave for somebody to be speaking out on this topic from within that community who's got that background uh, of leaving the religion what made you decide to put your face to this and, and speak out publicly in an area which can get very tricky there are a lot of kind of proverbial landmines and, and things you can get yourself into trouble with relatively easily yeah no for sure um it was it was a thought out decision but it was kind of like it, it almost felt like a duty because I know this sounds really cliche, but once you once you've had a lived experience and you've kind of come out of a religion um, like Islam, you actually see it for what it is. And it explains so much of what is wrong with the world and especially the Muslim world um, and the way women are treated and a lot of the abuse that we see going on. And there's not a lot of people that actually are in a privileged position, you know, the way I am even to be able to at least theoretically have the law kind of on your side and you know be able to be in a situation where you're free from pretty much you know technically speaking anyway the mob coming at you um the way other people are so I guess it's almost like there were so few of us and it's, it's almost like a power in numbers kind of thing as well that this is actually a movement um this is actually something that you know is is all across the globe now people are coming out but people who show their faces just kind of give other people that extra push to if you can't even show your face and it's unsafe but at least you've got a platform to you know share your voice and there's a voice for the voiceless and then step by step the more of us that come out I mean how many of us are they gonna actually end up trying to kill that's <laughs> yeah. a great it's a great point the strength in numbers isn't it and I suppose the more the more that people speak out uh, you know, the, the fewer targets there are on individuals' backs, I suppose, which which brings me towards my towards my own tribe, the, the left-wing tribe, which I'm, I'm still a member of. But I, I find myself incredibly disappointed with my fellow lefties on this issue. For me, the kind of uh, issue surrounding Islam and fundamentalist Islam, you look at sort of freedom of expression, you know, him, women's rights, gay rights, all the things that the left pretend to care about or do actually care about in most areas they they seem to fail to turn up when it's the in the context of islam and what what i don't know if you've noticed that maybe it's just my experience but have you noticed this and if so what best explains this in your mind yeah no i'm, I'm with you i've also noticed it unfortunately and um I, in, in the ex-muslim community we do consider it very much like this unholy alliance that is you know, one day going to eventually be at loggerheads themselves. But it's, you know, they, they find themselves just kind of veering towards, I guess, either Majid Nawaz put it really well when he said kind of the bigotry of low expectations in mm. a way and almost kind of that, you know, uh, the oppressor, oppressy mentality. And it just kind of, you know, flows over. For example, like if you look at what's happening in Iran, uh, the, the women in Iran are saying one thing and, you know, that they've got a united voice and they're essentially telling women who should technically be on their side and be their voice here, 
uh, hiding behind you know slogans like hijab is a choice and it's all well and good to you know be a liberal feminist I'll even go as far as to say a Muslim feminist um, though that's a complete misnomer but you know <laughs> to, <laughs> um, if uh, if you're completely isolating the women of, of Iran and the same thing that's happening in Afghanistan you know absolutely denying little girls the right to education these are all values that you think that you know everybody would rally behind but particularly the West and yeah, it's a it's it's a dangerous situation where you've got people who should technically be on your side pandering to one of the most dangerous forms um, of fundamentalism, albeit you know whether they're they're, sh- they're fed a sugar coated version or Islam light, if you will, um, and therefore they think that what happens over there is their culture and their traditions, and we need to be hyper uber sensitive about that to our yeah. own detriment. That's a good answer. I think we'll probably swing back around to sort of cultural relativism a, a bit later. But first, I suppose I want to get a bit about your background and your experience uh, of the the Islamic faith. I mean, I, I mean, you said you 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 were born in the UK. Is that right? You're kind of second generation, third generation, right? Yeah. So yeah, I mean, third. how was how was the religion sort of? Uh, I mean, was it imposed on you from an early age? What kind of role did it play in your life, and for how long? Yeah, so, um, yeah, uh, surprisingly, it played a very important part of um, my life, even though I was born in the UK, kind of third generation. Um, But because I'm sure, as with most kind of um, second, third generation immigrant families, a lot of them still stay in the extended family kind of setup. Um, So there's a lot of exposure to, like, you know, your grandparents' generation. And uh, I guess with each generation that is, is here, they have their own kind of, host of identity problems that they've got to come to terms with and obviously whatever's happening in the context of the backdrop of you know in England for example my parents generation they had to deal with a lot of the skinheads and and that kind of thing going on whereas I grew up with relatively kind of I've never had a, a racist altercation or anything of that kind but religion was was a big part because my grandfather was actually um the imam of the local mosque and so he would go and open it up for like the, the morning the early morning prayer which is basically four in the morning um so I was really close to him and like after school it was just routine like to go to the mosque and learn the Quran and memorize the Quran and kind of sit there for hours and being fed Islamic stories so by nine I was already wearing the hijab although nobody had forced me to, which is my, my situation's a bit unique. I actually did it out of my own kind of religious fervor. Like this is what God wants of me. So nine right. is the age and I'm going to do it. That's, that's incredible. So, I mean, I, I suppose the difference really is, I, sp- I mean, I grew up, uh, I mean, I was christened. Uh, I went to a Christian church of England school, but it was never reinforced in my community, in my home. I had a completely secular household, so it never stuck. And I was a bit lazy, to be honest. A lot of a lot of long words in the Bible for me back then, so it didn't really <laughs> stick for sure. There was nobody making me, you know, memorize and um, uh, recite uh, the the holy scriptures like perhaps you would have to at mosque uh, and whatnot. So it didn't really stick. And I suppose you you, you had the opposite experience of that, where it was you know, it was part of your daily routine. And this was clearly important enough to you at the age of nine to sort of choose yourself to to cover your hair. Uh, when did you start having doubts? Then what, what sort of made you start to think perhaps this wasn't everything you th- was told it was or thought it was? 
Yeah, so uh, like long story short, basically, uh, I was extremely religious while I was here. And again, I was only nine years old, but as like as into it as in religious education, RE, I would like demonstrate the prayer and kind of, you know, be the poster girl for Islam. Um, so then we kind of moved to Saudi Arabia for uh, my dad's job. And then we moved to the UAE. So I kind of got a massive flavor of hardcore Wahhabi Islam in Saudi Arabia. Um, so like after Friday prayers, they would just, you know, casually announce beheadings and things like that. And I'm just like this little girl over there being like turning around and asking my parents, is this what we believe in? And they kept assuring me that obviously, no, this is like, you know, Islam taken to an nth extreme and this is just Wahhabism and we don't believe this. And there were a couple of things, you know, that, that played on my mind growing up in Saudi Arabia, but it's interesting because in England, my, I, I was so into the faith, but when I got to Saudi Arabia, went to a British international school, met people from all religions, walks of life, countries. I realized about a million other Islamic sects that I had no idea existed. I learned about the Druze from Lebanon and all of these things kind of opened my eyes. And because Islam was so heavily in, like dominating, you'd hear the call to prayer, you have to wear an abaya, everything's segregated. I didn't feel the need to be as outwardly Muslim anymore. So I was kind of like having this more assimilative experience. Then we moved to the UAE and it's a bit more liberal again. So I thought, oh, wow, this is a perfect mix of East meets West. You know, you don't, you can go to the cinema and, and hang out in mixed groups, but also you don't need to wear an abaya and you still get all the Islamic holidays. Um, then coming back to England for university, um, the university that I was at, they offered an Islamic law course. And again, I was doing it and I was defending really weird things that were playing on my mind, but still a staunch Muslim. I was defending, you know, four wives and why a woman's testimony is worth half and all of this kind of crap, to be honest, now when I look back at those essays. But um, then I went back to the UAE as a young adult. And eventually when I had been in an abusive marriage and I tried to leave, there was a really archaic uh, clause that the corner of Sharia that was put on me. And um, it's essentially to do with disobedience of a wife. And it goes all the way back to the Quranic scripture itself, which is if you fear disobedience from your wife, you know, you can, you need to first dismiss the, um, sorry, separate your beds and then admonish them, beat them. But that fear of disobedience is called nushas in Arabic, and it sets up a whole bit of legal work. Um, so essentially they were, they basically said I'd moved away to my parents' house. I'd got a new job and we were just trying to separate but the police of the UAE said, if you don't go back to your husband's house, then we'll forcibly arrest you and you can't leave there without his permission. Um, and eventually by finally like a miracle phone call, I got out just before they were gonna kind of keep me in the country. And when I got back here, I tried to make sense of what happened to me. And I thought these were just men in positions of power, abusing their power. This has nothing to do with Islam or what God really sanctions. Um, so I actually started researching back in the UK to kind of defend my story if somebody else, you know, here would tell me, oh yeah, that's just what happens in Sharia or that's what Islam does. Um, so in this journey of me trying to understand and make sense of what happened to me, I went straight back to the, the source text, which is the Quran. And then I went to Muhammad's life and the Hadith and I just read it for the first time, like with the mind of an adult and almost like a legal text, like how did they take this word and put this on me? And that read me, led me down a rabbit hole. And eventually like I confronted the sources and I felt sick to my stomach. And I had that kind of the rug is pulled from your feet moment. And that was it.
Well, that's I mean that's that's a unique story for me because I've I've interviewed a fair number of ex-Muslims now and they they always have a different story of how they you know, came to leave the faith, you know, a lot of them would uh, gravitate towards enlightenment thinkers, you know, slyly reading Richard Dawkins when they thought no one was looking tends to come up. And I, I suppose, I mean, if you don't mind me asking, if it's not too much of a personal question, where are you in, in the sort of spiritual religious mindset now? I mean, a lot of ex-Muslims are openly uh, are atheist now. I mean, do you put yourself in that category? Yeah, I mean, as soon as Islam was out of the equation for me, I just, I don't know why, but the whole domino of Abrahamic, Abrahamic, sorry, mm. Islam shouldn't count itself in that, but Abrahamic faiths fell with it for me. And I only kind of like superficially uh, kind of was exploring, you know, uh, the East, Eastern philosophy and things like that. But I also had been like listening to the Four Horsemen and massive Hitchens fans. So that'll yeah, do completely. it. That'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. So I suppose it. I mean, getting back to you talking about sort of looking at the text and taking a kind of legal approach to it and the deeds and things like that. And for me, like what worries me, I suppose, about Islam, and it's been a while since I've read the Quran, but and I, and I suppose the truth is, this doesn't matter to someone like me because I don't believe it is the word of God. But for somebody that does, I suppose this really matters. And and the fact that to me, the extreme, the extremists within Islam almost sometimes seem to have the most plausible interpretation of the text. And I kind of grant the right of anyone to interpret their holy text how they want, to reform it. That'd be ideal, in fact. I very doubt that's possible. But to me, it just feels like the the jihadists and the Wahhabis seem to have a fairly good grasp of what the book is about. I don't know how you feel about this. Yeah, no, and actually, this is this is so important as well because I feel like in a lot of these, I mean, again, there's always the no true Scotsman flying around, and you know that you 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 hear that like ad nauseum. But to be honest, uh, this is the reason I also decided to speak out about Islam because if you take the most basic literal interpretation, uh, you know, which is again like the Wahhabis, you can you can argue they take it to a, a, an extra level, but even like the the Salafis and all like you know. Any literal, the most basic understanding of the Quran would lead you to um, absolute fundamentalism. And you could, the only argument against that is kind of more contextual, that doesn't apply now. But if pe like every single terror group that, that derives inspiration, like you said, the Quran is, is you, we don't believe it's the word of God, but you, that this is something that is like, it's the, the Quran calls itself a clear book. Um, it calls itself the ultimate guidance and it's the final, you know, ultimate message. So all of these kind of terror groups that hark back to and see the inspiration, and I don't want to get into geopolitics as well, but the amount of hadith, like actual source literature that is hell bent on, you know, slandering Jews and things like that. It this all of these things come from somewhere, and it is literally just not trying hard, not applying mental gymnastics, but taking it at at face value. The Quran at face value is extremely problematic, and even within like English society at the moment, it's always kind of people fall into the trap of the no true Scotsman, and they say that that's some people's interpretation of some of the texts. What they don't realize is you can't put the Quran under some of the texts. The Quran is literally Islam, like that, and that's unreformable, as you said. That's why reform becomes difficult. But yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I was on a panel just before Christmas at the Battle of Ideas in Buxton, and uh, 
we were discussing the rise of anti-Semitism in the wake of the October 7th massacres. And I made the point that the main source of anti-Semitism in 2023, when it was, comes to us from Islamism. And uh, I got a little bit of pushback by one of my fellow panel members who understood Islamism. I think, you know, he opposed it. But his, his basic argument was that Islamism is just a form of identity politics like any other identity politics and it's not really a special case in the context of anti-semitism just wondering how you'd see that kind of pushback i yeah no i i think it's absolutely fundamental to the sources and it that goes hand in hand with i you know what i would i would actually push further and say it goes hand in hand with uh even let's say like a, a liberal progressive muslim would still harbor uh facets of anti-semitism whether you've gone down the kind of, you know, identity politics route or not. I mean, I'm telling you this as a former Muslim who I've been hearing things since I was a child. And, you know, I would say that even the gener- my parents' generation, they're exceptionally liberal. But there is something that, I mean, it, it goes, it's very dark, the ideology, but there is this entire concept of like you know the the this end game battle and muslims versus jews and you throughout the theology uh the fact that muhammad was poisoned by a jewish woman as well um and you know the the, the, it's it it's all the way through it seeps through islam and i don't think you can pin it down to just identity politics i think that would be doing a disservice to how rampant it is for sure. I think as Ian Hersey Aliou says she kind of drank anti-Semitism in the water in the Islamic cult she was in. I think, was it Mehdi Hassan? You know, you're aware of the, the Muslim journalist, there's a Brit. Yeah. I think he wrote a while back, in, maybe in the Garden or the Independent, that anti-Semitism was kind of like a dirty little secret within his kind of experience of the Muslim community as well. So yeah, these, these like you say, there's definitely a, a huge link there that can't kind of just be waved away as just another form of identity politics. I wanted to move on to a sort of freedom of expression a little bit though, because I've always been kind of focused on religion and, and kind of opposing religion as a secularist. But the, the thing that kind of underpinned that most was a commitment to freedom of expression. I, I always valued that above all else. And I, I tend to find that fundamentalist religions are the, one, are, the, are the ideologies that get in the way of that most, no more uh, than Islam, uh, it seems. And I, it worries me that, I mean, obviously in the Middle East and Islamic countries, it's it's state law that certain things can't be said and you're putting your life into your hands if you do. That's why, you know, Islamic dissidents in them countries are, are heroes to me. Uh, however, in the UK as well, as we've seen with the school teachers still in hiding in Bartley, you know, there, there always seems to be a, a, a just a, an Islamic blasphemy controversy just around the corner. And it's not entirely far-fetched or unreasonable to assume that credible sorry threats of death are credible when they come when it comes from this direction so have we kind of lost our freedom of expression in the uk to openly criticize islam or uh, satirize some of its central figures i I think i and again unfortunately i think we have i mean that these things should not be happening in 2024 britain you know the fact that teachers are going having to go into hiding just for literally doing their job and i think this is just the culmination of a lot of pandering over the years to, uh, you know, just, I guess, Muslim sentiment and and cries of Islamophobia and things like that. And, you know, every time, I, I hate to say this, but every time you, you give an inch, they take a mile. So things like when we've already got like hate speech, uh, you know, laws that exist, and then you try and push for laws that specifically protect things like Islamophobia. 
uh, it's just this constant like push against just the status quo. And like once again, I just think if we if the UK government hadn't been pandering and, you know, we, we see even like the Labour Party, I'm sorry to say they also have a lot to answer for. But it's just, yeah, uh, if, if, if it hadn't got to this point where the Muslim communities would feel so entitled and empowered. And obviously this is not helped by like, you know, the effective no go zones that we see across the UK. Um, it, it's just kind of like. I hate to, you know, I don't want to like fear monger and stuff, but this is all part and parcel of like just Islam's modus operandi. You know, it's the, it refuses to get with the program. It refuses to assimilate. It refuses to, you know, integrate and it refuses to accept other people's beliefs or and it's just imposing in that sense. So, yeah, I it's just, it's wild to me that this can happen in Britain, that you can force a teacher into hiding for teaching a class of religious education, which is basically what it does, what it says on the tin. And I mean, you're, it's just, yeah, it's so unfortunate. Yeah, and you and that's it's a double standard for me on the left again because if this teacher had a you know it's in a similar scenario for say openly supporting Black Lives Matter and he was hiding from racist, they would be outcry. You know, the government would intervene; it'd be a big national scandal. Seems like everyone's kind of forgotten about the Batley teacher who's still in hiding. But I suppose it might be a good point at this part in the conversation, just for anyone who's not not really dipped their toe in this conversation before, who's not really invested in it, who kind of maybe has a surface level uh, appreciation of the climate where Islam's concerned. How can we kind of reassure them that we're not just kicking a minority here and we're not just generalizing uh, about Muslims uh, as a whole and we're kind of, we're locked onto a very specific issue related to very specific people? Yeah, I guess this is like, I say this again with, with every single one of my videos as well, because it's really easy for like this conversation to get hijacked and used for various agendas and, you know, people to, to take it in that way. But again, this is a massive, massive, I just like to make distinction between what is a real problem and does truly exist in British society, which is anti-Muslim bigotry. Uh, obviously, I think right at the minute we're also facing rampant anti-Semitism, but anti-Muslim bigotry definitely does exist, um, and and that's fundamentally wrong and something we should speak out against. But Islam, in terms of what it, it as an ideology, the way that it can intimidate and bully and you know uh, come completely uh, at loggerheads with. I guess everything that British values uh, are and stand for, Western enlightened values stand for. Um, and we see that playing out in society here. So when we call it out or when we speak out about it, it is literally the set of beliefs that these people are hell bent on forcing upon society as opposed to just kind of, you know, having your personal religion at home. So again, it's it's not to say, and, and it's not generalizing Muslims with, you know, one, one paintbrush, that's absolutely not the case, but Islam needs to be called out. And I say this as somebody who, I, I think I would like to use that privilege as someone who comes from within the community. So I can't really be racist to my own people. And to clarify, people who call Islam uh, or criticizing Islam as racism as well, Islam is not a race. So that falls on flat on its face in the first place. Islam is not a race. And the set of ideologies that is Islam, which in, in, the, in the 21st century can bully and intimidate teachers in the UK, it needs to be called out because a lot of time, as I said, even Stephen, which was so wild to me, and I like I honestly felt sick to my stomach, but even some of like the grooming gang victim survivors, they were trying to say like, oh, they were so worried 
about the spread of uh, anti-Muslim bigotry and Islam being given ba a, a bad rep, you know, or Muslims being given a bad rep. And again, this is where people from the ex-Muslim community have to come and step in and say, we are not kind of, you know, make, pulling this out of thin air, but there is a, a like a, a inextricable, inextricable link, sorry, between violence or intimidation or crimes that you see and what Islam sanctions within the scripture. And the only reason we talk about it is because people do take it literally. That's the problem we have here. Yeah, no, that's a great answer. And I mean, I suppose we saw a while back, was, I imagine it was a massive headache for the left. We had uh, large numbers of Muslims protesting a school because the school was teaching about gay marriage or gay rights or something like that so we had this this horrible horrible situation for the left where it was kind of like gay rights versus uh, you know ethnic minorities slash visibly muslim people uh and obviously they were kind of being forced to choose a side which really kind of messes with the whole uh intersectional hierarchy in a way and what what was your perception of, of that event as it was happening and Again, it, the left's silence on that, was that particularly telling in any way to you? Yeah, I mean, obviously the, the left's silence is, is always pretty telling in those in those kind of situations because I guess with the, with the when it comes to the Islamic side, once again, um, it's like, it, it, there's like parallels with, I'm not, I always forget the name of the, the head teacher in the school. There's currently another uh, incident going on where the Muslim, Muslims have requested a separate prayer room. Um, but the school that uh, is is involved in this is a very specific kind of uh, pretty high level school. But you you understand the kind of education that you're signing up for um, when you send your child to that school. It's a specific curriculum. They operate completely, um, you know, in in a sense where everyone's needs are taken into consideration. But no religion or nothing is given special privilege. Um, right. Are you aware of? Are you um, anyway? It's, it's just been in the news recently. This head teacher has essentially, in a similar fashion to uh, what happened at Bateley Grammar School, she's essentially taken on the entire, for lack of a better word, like Muslim brigade at this point, who have tried to essentially now change the entire framework of a school's um, syllabus. And she's arguing that we've not made an exception for anybody in the past, like Hindu students, sorry, Hindu parents have complained um, that there's kind of non-vegetarian things being cooked on the same platter, um, Christian Parents have complained that their children have to attend um, church on Sunday, so they shouldn't have the class on that day. Every set of parents have have uh, complained, but they've never, ever bent over backwards for any of them. And that should not be the case in this uh, situation either. So, again, I just think it's uh, when it comes to, like, you know, trying to actually destabilize a school system that is in place for whatever reason and whatever reason you choose to send your children to that school um i i'm not in favor of faith-based schools anyway so i don't think that's the answer because if you were to take all of those muslim students who are unhappy with lgbt you know q plus things being taught they were obviously going to go to some islami madrasa s type school which is just an offshoot of what is happening in some of these london mosques anyway on a friday but now you get the children from a younger age and you get to start you know, filling their minds with that. So, yeah, it's a it's a tricky situation.
I mean, there is this the massive fear, isn't there? You know, certainly UK society being labelled a racist. There's nothing. It's just a horrible thing to be smeared as a racist, because obviously being being a racist is a, is a terrible thing to be. But I, I often find it is is kind of weaponized, and obviously you say that's conflated with this horrible term Islamophobia uh, as well. And just tying into, I suppose, something you were saying earlier, it reminded me of um, the, you know the Manchester Arena bombing, which was you know down the road from where I am. And it was revealed in the investigation after that, that one of the security guards actually got his eyes on the uh, suspect, Salman Abedi, the, the suicide bomber, because somebody had reported him as looking dodgy uh, to the staff, I think was the word he'd used. So he, he investigated, got eyes on this would-be su- on this suicide bomber. And he, he himself said that he had a, a bad feeling about this individual just by what he saw, what his perception was. But he made the conscious decision not to approach him or investigate any further because he was utterly terrified, and these are his words, of being thought of as racist if he'd got it wrong. The idea of approaching a, a non-white man uh, for extra attention in, in the sort of context of security or terrorism was just too much of a minefield for him that he left it. Now, obviously, it's a huge responsibility for anyone and that, you know, I'm not saying things could have been differently if he didn't feel that way. Obviously, I, it probably wouldn't have been. But it does say a lot, really, doesn't it, when somebody's made a conscious decision in their mind to choose between being called a racist and perhaps uh, outing uh, a, a terrorist. I mean, what, what do you make of that sort of mentality that's kind of got a grip of the of the public in general? Absolutely. I, I think it's honestly, it, it's, it's ab- absolutely to every single one of our detriments. Like this is, we 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 can't put things like that at the forefront. You know, when when the risk and the alternative is so uh, atrocious, the, even the possibility of it, um, these if you let if you let like you know fundamental and there's this fundamental terrorists who have served some jail time and come out and convinced officers that they're fully rehabilitated and you know you like you said fear of racism or probing too hard or whatever you you kind of give them a free pass and you trust them and you let them go but sometimes i mean hi, hi, allowing them to hide behind the fear of not being looked into and things like that under the guise of racism it's a similar mentality that again i don't want to hark back to the grooming gangs but similar mentality was that we're not going to get investigated in this manner uh because the climate is that they're so afraid to be labeled islamophobic or racist but look what happens when you don't do that and look what happens when you don't act on it so i mean the yeah that that just that can't go on because i think the this is given rise to all of the pandering that's happened thus far and now it almost feels like they are powerful in their you know knowledge that this is something they can cry and it will work um and just to know that it have it can have the potential to work is it's not good enough because that's where again um please like when ex-muslims come out and tell you there is there are deeper reasons behind why things are the way they are or why their psyche is a certain way or their concept of the other this isn't coming from nowhere um this is this is absolutely like somebody coming out of that mindset so it's not and again i'm sorry to say but this is also something that they know that they can kind of use white guilt to further push that narrative of we're the victims here um, but yeah, just just don't let that work when it comes to the safety of, you know, women, children, the elderly, our society in general. That's great advice. And uh, I suppose I've given my fellow left is enough kicking of a kicking this evening. So it might be worth 
just focusing on the right as, as a problem as well, because I, I've become increasingly concerned over the last few years about the right. And it all feeds into, I suppose, the left's moral failure, the, the right kind of fill that spot and offer solutions. And the solutions are usually terrible. Seeing a, a kind of uh, resurgence of conservative Christianity propping up as a, a response, not you know, offered as a response, not only to the problem of Islamism, but quote unquote, you know, woke ideology, identity politics, things like that. And I'm, I'm kind of seeing a kind of um, re-emergence of just, you know, bare old uh, standard garden variety racism. I think I've seen comments of, uh, you know, at Palestine, uh, pro-Palestinian demonstrations when, you know, the line's been crossed and them clips have been shared on social media. A lot of the replies will say, you know, deport them. Uh, you know, they, obviously, there's been no uh, in-depth analysis as to the nationality of that individual. They've just seen a brown person and thought foreigner. And uh, that that worries me that the right are kind of going from strength to strength on, on various issues that otherwise sensible people are, are checking out of. I was just wondering, have you seen a, I mean, I'm very pleased to hear from you. You said at the start of the show that you've not had to deal with any racist incidents in the UK, which is that that's that's what you want, really. That's what you want to hear. But I mean, are you worried about a kind of resurgence of like the, the old school skinhead right leaning loons who just can't stand anything you know, uh, perceived to be non-British. Yeah, and just to uh, say, I probably didn't experience any racism because I spent a good chunk of uh, my adolescence outside of the country. So, had I gone to school here, uh, high school here, it might have been a different story. But, right. Okay. Um, um, but yeah, no, I, I, I have because, um, I mean, naturally, naturally, um, like I said, with the pandering of uh, just, just the pandering, I guess to a lot of I what I would consider Islamism um, over the like the last couple of decades and stuff, you, you can tell that things were going to come to a boiling point. And then, you know, you've got lots of incidents, for example, even just like the grooming gang scandal, but all of these things, which and um, we see like even what's happening in Ireland right now. Um, and then the the chaos that migrate like the 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 migration debate and then kind of really hardline rhetoric from people like Sweda Braverman and things like that it's obviously charging up uh, the right immensely and again I, I like when I started my activism against Islam the first few like invitations I got to like come on these podcasts and and do all these shows were actually far right groups and I had to be like wow I'm not gonna you know, mm. be your poster woman for your agenda. So you end up being a little bit like politically homeless in that sense. But I can see why the pendulum is shifting. So whereas that what I considered, you know, really kind of right, like kind of extreme right views now seem a little bit less extreme just because of how far the left have taken it, that, you know, it's it's kind of like the, the pendulum shifting. And you can see that there is this is why it's dangerous and it's it's I try and kind of walk a really um fine line because I see a lot especially lately on x I see so many uh like far-right accounts and they like you said the comments are, are honestly un unruly like it, it's I couldn't I can't believe that there's people around me that are actually that think like that because I yeah I you imagine know. what they must look like. I always, that's where I always yeah. go to in my head. What does this person look like? <laughs> yeah. And sometimes I'm like, are you just saying this because you're behind a screen or would you actually yeah. say this out loud? Um, so sometimes I, I genuinely follow them because I want to understand the psyche of like, you know, how, I mean, and is, is this genuinely the way you perceive other people? 
Um, but yeah, it's a, it, it's a weird time because obviously I think people who were once very firmly or comfortable in the left are now kind of just a little bit shaken up and they're like, am I just a bit more in the center here? And, and the right is obviously getting fueled off the same. So they're kind of fueling each other at this point. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think I've changed politically. I'm I'm centre left, and I don't think I've moved much. But I feel like most people have moved further left than me. So I'm perceived by many people to be far right, which is is blows my mind when that accusation comes. But then obviously when I mention that I'm sort of like you know pro LGBT, secular atheist, vegetarian, I'm then woke to the people to the right of me. So I you can't I can't really win. Really, I suppose you just got to kind of stand on on principle. But just to tread back into really tricky tricky territory again, uh, the grooming gangs has, has come up a couple of times in this conversation, and that's something. I mean, that's a scandal uh, in the UK that I don't quite think many people fully appreciate the the size of it, the extent to which it went on for how long, and how many people were victimised. It seems to be a very taboo subject to talk about. It's very it makes people very uncomfortable, and obviously that's tied into the ethnicity of the perpetrators and the, the religious link. And it, the, I suppose the, the most common descriptor was Asian grooming gangs in the press, which was a bit unfair because there's there a lot of Chinese people sat around saying, what the hell have I done, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, so, Chinese people and all the other Asians. Yeah, exactly. And a, a lot of people will say, well, it was chiefly just um, uh, Muslim uh, Muslims uh, or people of Pakistani background, you know, majoritively. And I just wanted to get your opinion on, on which one of them kind of descriptors is the most telling, really. I mean, uh, people will say it was a purely a crime of opportunity. You know, the nighttime economy, a lot of these people were taxi drivers, takeaway owners, things like that. They prey on vulnerable girls uh, because they had the opportunity to do so in the evening. A lot of people will outright blame Islam and say it's a scriptural thing, uh, this idea of ownership, looking down on non-Muslims, uh, etc. Is it is it some of one and not as much of the other? I mean, what, what's the balance here? What, what do you pin this to? Um obviously there's there's a bit of both at play but there's definitely definitely I mean something I think the angle that is uh I guess less talked about is the direct uh link that it does have I mean I say this as an ex-Muslim because I I've read up this scripture and kind of like you know as a woman had to confront exactly what it says about a myself as a believing woman when I was one but also what it says about my fellow women and uh, to be honest, that was one of my major reasons for leaving Islam ultimately was the way that, again, when I mentioned the concept of the other before, um, in, in Islam, there's very much like a hierarchy. And when it comes to Muslim women, they have this illusion of being protected and treated like queens and all of that kind of jazz, whereas they are just being abused within the confines of Islam um, through a severe lack of any rights, even though they say Islam gave women rights and Muhammad was the first feminist, yada, yada. But <laughs> when it comes to uh, non-Muslim women, that's when it gets pretty dark. And again, it harks all the way back to events that took place in Muhammad's lifetime and his companions and the way they treated non-Muslim women at the time. Um, but if you listen to even like some of the victim survivors, for example, in the words of Ella Hill herself, she was saying that the perpetrators, while they were beating her, were quoting verses from the Quran. Um, and I work in the domestic violence sector at the moment, and this is not uncommon even with domestic violence situations between a Muslim couple. The, 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 the perpetrator or the alleged perpetrator will actually be 
quoting his right to beat her as he does. Now, with the grooming gangs, there's an added layer of, when I say othering, it's like these women, because A, they don't conform to Muslim standards of gender norms and modesty culture, again, which harks all the way back to the Quran, uh, purity culture, virginity, modesty, things like that. When Muslim, so when Islam looks at any non-believing or sorry, non-Muslim woman, their values don't align exactly with the Islamic narrative. So therefore, in the in a Muslim man's mind, according to theology, a non-Muslim woman is fair game um, because they are the infidel. They are, I'm sorry for even saying this, but considered impure. Um, they are, you know, considered as pretty much pieces of meat. And it, again, I discuss this at length in, in videos on my YouTube channel, but it harks all the way back to sexual raids that would occur in uh, Prophet Muhammad, sorry, not Prophet Muhammad's times. <laughs> That's the brainwashing. Muhammad's time. <laughs> Police be upon him for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it harks back to exactly what him and his companions did and the way they have written um, how to view non-Muslim women. Uh, so this is, again, in, in the words of Ella Hill, again, she says that while governments in, in the Western world, or even this, the UK government, is trying to understand more about, you know, child sexual exploitation uh, in general, and let's say even paedophile gangs, the way that grooming gangs operate are fundamentally more similar to uh, a terrorist organization or a terrorist network. And it's because they have this grand superior belief or motivation behind them. I mean, there was even one of the perpetrators who in court uh, as a defendant, he literally used, he said it was his religious right to have sexual intercourse uh, with children. Again, harks all the way back to theology, which was Muhammad's marriage to Aisha, and therefore it gives them carte blanche to do the same thing, which is what we see being replicated in Afghanistan as well. And all across the Muslim world, the rates of child marriage are there plain for people to see. That's a great answer and obviously links it direct to the scripture. And obviously, if we didn't see, I mean, what, what fascinates me most about this kind of link between ideas and behavior, it, I mean, it would almost be a conspiracy theory if it sort of, say, Islamic terrorism, if the reasons they gave were completely different from anything to do with scripture. You know, the, the grooming gangs, if they're the reasons they gave were completely different from the scriptures. But it seems to me that the people who are fundamentalists within this religion, and there seems to be a surplus, are not shy about telling us the explicit reasons related to the doctrine as to why they're doing what they're doing. And I mean, I, I always remember looking at, say, um, Dabiq, the official propaganda arm of ISIS at the time when they were at their their height. And it, they, they put out an issue which is candidly titled, you know, why we hate you and why we want to kill you. They put, They'd numbered it. And every single justification had to do with something scriptural. And I, I'm wondering what's happening here in the sense that they can be so overt and explicit with their justifications for what they're doing. Yet people on the left will cling to this idea, this phrase, this belief that it has nothing to do with Islam. Is there just a basic lack of empathy or a basic lack of understanding of the Islamic scripture? Do a lot of secularists and atheists and maybe uh, sort of moderate Christians just assume it's just like Christianity in a sense? It's just it's just a different culture's version of my religion. Uh, what's going on there to stop them kind of saying, yes, there is a huge link between Islamic scripture and bad behavior? 
Yeah, I think it's it's it's, a, it's quite a lot of factors, but it's definitely that as well. Like it's Islam is lumped in with every other kind of religion, um, and I think that's a mistake in itself because obviously Islam is is quite young and it's still got that whole arm of literal interpretation. Whereas you know, there's there's not many people who are taking the the Bible like verbatim or the Old Testament, thankfully. But um, yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's that lack of you know it's it's just a religion and it's it's kind of their own spiritual things to deal with and it's just some people like I said the no true Scotsman and has taken some texts and it's just their interpretation and I think there's a massive lack of understanding with you know being inspired by the word of God uh for example some think the Bible is versus the actual unchangeable word of God uh which is you know whether you can argue that these these things are outdated or it was just for that time people think no it's for all time and Islam makes that claim for itself as well that it is also a timeless religion um so it's uh, and then I think also in the UK especially the Islamic dawah scene has done a great job of fronting Islam as you know this really kind of uh, we can get along with you know British values and yeah we shout a bit at speaker's corner but really you know it, it's just our own thing and jihad is an inner struggle and it's it's a spiritual struggle and things like that but then on the flip side you have people like Dili Hussein from Five Pillars in an interview really deliberately vaguely talking about like infiltrating a system from within and then changing it and you know it just kind of plants the seeds of there are like different levels of jihad going on here but to a really kind of lay non-islamic orientated western mind you can easily kind of like i said sell this islam light version that's kind of oh we go to mosque on sundays and uh, sorry we go to church on sundays they go to mosque and actually uh again even as a muslim i would happily have stayed a liberal muslim living in the uae or even here but not knowing what the actual text says once you realize what it says, uh, you understand how problematic it is and you understand why there's a rampant anti-Semitism problem within the within Muslim communities, whether wherever they're from uh, globally. So then you understand that fundamentally there's an issue in the text and this, this text isn't a benign thing. So to consider it a benign thing and just think that, you know, this is just cultural practices and, oh, Ramadan and fasting, the actual text is, is highly sus. <laughs> I think I might slowly be starting to become a Muslim. I've, I don't, I don't drink as much anymore, and I do fast. It's finally happening. I'm a, I'm a yeah, yeah, closer to shahada at this point. I, think. I was going to say you're just missing the, the magic Arabic word, Stephen. Yeah. I can, I can help you if you wanted to do that. <laughs> Maybe not. I, I think <laughs> the only issue I have with that is the return process is not particularly pleasant if I'm not satisfied with my experience. Uh, I mean, it might be worth talking about apostasy, actually, because that's that's quite a unique aspect, isn't it? And that will really kind of tie into your experience as an ex-Muslim, because it's it's quite, you know, it's, it's seen as quite empowering, especially for women to leave a religion generally. We're talking about other monotheisms, this kind of emancipating yourself from a kind of patriarchal uh, uh, religious system. Whereas in Islam, it's very specific about what the punishment is for, relie- for leaving that religion. And uh, not a lot of people tend to know this or, you know, particularly believe it when I mention it. But I think these, last time I checked, I think there was 13 countries where apostasy was punishable by death might be homosexual i might be conflating things here but i mean yeah. how, how strong is that 
that injunction in Islam and, uh, you know, uh, how, how often is it enforced? And do, do you worry about this, the kind of pushback that you might get from, from people or fundamentalists within the Muslim community? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think this is this is why I think ex-Muslim as a movement even had to become what it is um, and, and had to start somewhere because genuinely everybody that speaks out against Islam or leaves Islam openly um, and publicly, there is technically a bounty on your head, um, whether it's a state that is trying to come after you or whether it's, you know, your neighbor, uh, your Muslim neighbor that realizes you've gone too far and wants to take God's law into his or her own hands. Um, so there's always that bounty kind of looming, and that's why it's important to speak out. Um, but again, I came from a Sunni Muslim background, and Sunni is one of the biggest uh, sects of Islam. It's like mainstream Islam, if you will. Um, sorry to the Shias and everyone else out there. But... <laughs> Shout out to the Shias. <laughs> Shout out to the Shias, Ismailis, Ahmadis, all of them. But uh, Sunni <laughs> Sunni's like the mainstream sect, and in the... Um, in the actual hadith, which is a massive part after the Quran, it's the hadith which Sunnis look to. The Prophet has verbatim in his words, which, you know, they have the science of hadith. It's it's basically hearsay uh, spanning centuries. But anyway, uh, within that, the Prophet has verbatim said, anyone who changes their religion, kill him. He wasn't thinking of women. He didn't think women could leave. Um, there's also an Islamic school of thought in which there is no punishment for women leaving Islam or apostatizing because they, they can't they can't fathom the concept of a woman leaving Islam because we've got half the intelligence. But yeah, in all other uh, in all other schools of thought, as you said, Stephen, we're basically uh, to varying degrees and like minor differences, given kind of three days to repent or locked away in a room, isolated, uh, but ultimately beheaded or whatever the uh, emir or the caliph of uh, the ruling province or whatever decides. But yeah, it is fundamentally in the scripture and the the word for apostasy in Islam, which is why Islam is, it, it's, it doesn't justify it to call it a religion. It's actually more of a political uh, kind of imperialistic ideology as well at, at the heart of it. The word for apostasy in Arabic is irtidad, which the English equivalent would be treason. So leaving Islam is akin to you having committed treason. Therefore, you deserve the death penalty, uh, specifically beheading. <laughs> wow. Okay, I'm trying to think of something more cheery to talk about, but uh, I'm struggling. Sorry. So, I mean, <laughs> no, don't be at all. I mean, this is this is really fascinating stuff, and I, I think people really need to get more engaged in this discussion for for sure. Because, I mean, it, it, that's what really frustrates me off, frustrates me or pisses me off rather most about this conversation is that it it's kind of like a microcosm of everything uh social justice movements pretend to care about you've got women's rights like i said freedom of expression you know you could pop potentially put you know bigotry or racism in there perhaps as well uh, and I, I suppose that just to be on a more on a more positive note talk to me a little bit about your advocacy for women's rights how, how do you help people that have you know had uh, terrible things happen to them or bad experiences within within islam or because of islam um so yeah like well i i guess uh in terms of like my my work during like general work, I, I 
don't even touch on religion. It's just trying to, even if a woman comes and says, you know, my uh, my husband used the Quran to, to justify beating me, we're dealing with uh, that case and kind of ensuring her safety and safeguarding at that minute as opposed to, you know, all of that. So I, I never discuss this kind of stuff in my line of work, but my YouTube platform is definitely a place where I, I have kind of hoped and tried to make it a safe space for women, particularly women in uh, Muslim countries, to come and whether we use a voice changer or whatever it is to ensure their safety, uh, just to tell their story because there was so, it was so few and far between to see women, especially women who show their face and come out and talk just to give other women the concept of, um, you know, you, you're absolutely not going to be judged here. Coming out of Islam is such a big deal because naturally women who are probably leaving Islam have gone through some of the worst aspects of Islam and they've got a lot on the line to lose, whether it's like societal shunning, losing custody of their children, um, having zero financial means, being deprived of an education or taken out of school early or child marriage or what have you. Um, so it just, yeah, people who are able to share their stories and then inspire other people. And again, to connect them with organizations that, uh, again, are working in this kind of secular freedom from religion space like Humanist UK, Faithless Hijabi, uh, Council of Ex-Muslims Britain, to kind of have all of these platforms interact so that we can actually safeguard a lot of these people, even, for example, when they're trying to, you know, flee perse religious persecution and come to places like the UK, the asylum policy as it stands, the default hostile environment is so off-putting that, you know, it's just important for people to be able to, like, even when I started when I left Islam, there was such a small community. I think X at that time saved my life because I didn't realize that anybody was thinking in a similar manner. And then between YouTube and X, I found a community and I was like, whoa, I'm actually not going crazy. So <laughs> it's sometimes just as simple as ensuring, like reassuring people that they're not going crazy. And there are people that think like you because up until a certain year, I had never even heard the term ex-Muslim. I didn't, I didn't think it was possible to leave Islam. I didn't know why anyone would leave Islam. <laughs> that's that's incredible that's really funny that yeah it's that's i suppose that's the, the the internet is good for some things obviously so in terms of your um your your you know you're publicly speaking out about this you're you're, you're you know you're putting your face out there i mean for me i, I mean I'm, I'm so impressed with people who decide to do this because you could be entirely forgiven for you know leaving islam and thinking now i'm just looking forward to a quiet life free of this uh, but it seems to me that you you kind of took on this extra responsibility to speak out uh, and put your face out there. And what, what's the difference between the mentality there between somebody who just wants to move away from it all and get on with their life, which you couldn't fault somebody for, and you? What, what's the defining factor that makes you actually want to do this all the time? I think it's the the potential, the honesty, the potential that I see uh, with the, again, the rise of the internet and social media, what the internet is doing now, like any, like Stephen, I could be connecting with women in remote villages in Afghanistan. Do you know what I mean? And, and yes, yeah. if I'm speaking Urdu and we have this kind of broken conversation, but they have access to a video, even through VPN or whatever, um, being able to show them a source, not just say, oh, this is something I heard, but show them, look, this is what your prophet said. You are a clever young woman. Do you agree with this or not? Because this is why you're being deprived of this. So women, I honestly think that there was, there's quite a lot of men in the ex-Muslim space and they're doing fantastic work. But women are the reason that Islam is still 
got the stronghold that it has. When women leave Islam and Muslim men do not have this control and these, you know, this carte blanche of abusive, you know, uh, free reign on these women and to use them as baby making machines and for all kinds of reasons to spread this cause, then Islam will it will give a, a massive, massive, massive uh, more chance of Islam crumbling a lot sooner than we anticipate it will it will go. So if I can even play like a tiny role in, you know, changing the mind of one woman um, who, because again, again, women are pretty much the bearers of the next generation. If you're a woman with children and you've left Islam, you're not going to pass that on to the next generation. You're going to be instilling a lot, kind of the values are going to be a lot different. And so within a generation, especially in countries like, like Pakistan or Afghanistan or wherever, that one generation of women break away, it's a lot of uh, change that can happen. And even in the UK, for example, like taking these, these women who are struggling with their identity, like I once was a Muslim woman, and I was so hell-bent on showing my identity outwardly just to kind of make sense of where I come from, my roots, how do I fit into this society? Uh, but you realize you absolutely can. And Islam or your religion and all of this doesn't need to be a part of it. In fact, it is the reason it's you know, holding so many people back, um, especially when it comes to Islam, women and children suffer all the time within Islam. Outside of Islam, it's everybody suffers. So I guess that was the differential factor. You can't keep quiet when you know how bad something is. You absolutely can't. No, that's a great answer. And you just hit on a, a perfect point there. I mean, I suppose a lot of people would look at your advocacy uh, uh, your uh, and they would describe it as anti-Islam. They certainly would, I suppose, my attitude. And they think that this is an attack on Muslims. But I think the truth of the heart of the matter is that, the, you know, the chief victims of this ideology when it's taken to extremes are Muslims themselves. So it, it, I'd want nothing more than, you know, Muslim women and men to be emancipated from that religion and just tying into i suppose what you were talking about about this hostile environment with our asylum system uh, has i mean i suppose it's uh it's contrasted i suppose with the the, the stop the boats movement the you know constant images being fed to us of boats turning up on our shores of quote-unquote fighting age men of middle eastern appearance likely muslim uh, is that kind of thing really affecting uh legitimate calls for asylum seekers um, I would, I would, I would think it's, it's a, it's a big mess in general, obviously, because there was, there's a lot of, uh, there, there's a massive problem with, yeah. uh, these boats coming in, obviously, and obviously Islamism that comes through with that, or, you know, can obviously, uh, be manifest in society because of what's happening there. Um, and that is, I guess, it's feeding the fear mongering, which really like, again, the Tories have been in power for a while now, but the hostile environment is kind of just always there in the backdrop. But we've not done enough as I think as a country to kind of understand, uh, we talk a lot about illegal immigration, but we don't talk enough about genuine um, like cases of asylum or people fleeing persecution. And like, even if you look at the gov.uk websites, for example, some of their case studies and what is informing these cases of people who are genuinely seeking asylum are either really outdated or they're misinformed or they're kind of just not in, uh, uh, like they haven't got real time information. So I think there's a massive lack of understanding and awareness about who really is coming here uh, for the right reasons and because they genuinely need refuge and a safe space and we should offer them that and then the way they are treated in the interim as well like I'm not sure if you know but many many years ago now there was a um, a case I think somebody was fleeing from Pakistan it was 
and um, Duncan Lewis were representing him, but it was, um, he considered himself a humanist and he was fleeing religious persecution, but the Home Office had like set this questionnaire where they'd asked for like a bunch of intellectuals from the past and, and done a questionnaire of who was considered a humanist or not. And they had like Aristotle, Plato, Socrates. And because his answers didn't match up with what the Home Office considered to be humanist, his case was rejected and then Duncan Lewis had to appeal it and then eventually he was granted asylum but it's like a very it's a very currently weird system and the people who apply don't feel comfortable doing it and I don't think the home office even feel empowered making the decisions that they do and then you've got the fear-mongering and the real problems that come with the illegal boats uh crossings as well so it's just uh yeah work needs to be done and I think right the right people need to be employed and you know like probably again even harking back to the grooming gangs these problems need to be understood in a lens that's not just the lens that the police or public policy so far has been driven by. That's great. I thought I was being a little unfair dropping the subject of immigration on you with two minutes to go, but you've absolutely nailed it uh, perfectly there, Nuria. So uh, thank you very much for joining us. I've, re I've really enjoyed speaking to you and I'm, I'm really glad you're doing the work you are doing. And I, I genuinely believe it's, it, I think, you know, very important and very courageous. So thank you for that. Uh, maybe you can let people know where they can find uh, more of your work if they want to find out more. Yeah, you can find me at um, my YouTube channel is Holy Humanist. And on X, it's at Nuria K, but that's where I'm mostly active. But yeah, thank you so much, Stephen. It was, uh, it was so good talking to you. And thank you for having me on and platforming these kind of, well, you know, really contentious issues, I guess, for lack of a better word. <laughs> Entirely our pleasure. Thank you very much. Nice to see you. Bye. Thank you. Take care. Great guest. Great topics there. Controversial, some of them, taboo. But, you know, it's only taboo because not a lot of people are willing to speak about it. And like I say, it's important. Uh, we should be bringing in our next guest any moment uh, for a complete pivot in topic. Stephen, welcome to the show. How are you? Well, thanks for the invite. It's our pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Uh, maybe you can let our uh, audience and listeners know uh, what it is you do, what keeps you busy. Uh, well, I'm a professor of philosophy. I teach at Rockford University in the United States, just outside of Chicago. And I uh, specialize in uh, uh, major philosophers of the European tradition. Uh, so especially uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, whom I understand we're going to talk about today, probably the most influential philosopher on 20th century philosophy, uh, but not only philosophy, also political and cultural movements. For sure. And if I'm not mistaken, and you'll be a better place to kind of appreciate than this than me, Nietzsche seems to have a seems to have had a bit of a resurgence in mm. in recent years. He seems to have found a new generation, seen a lot more references to it online. I'm not sure if that's perhaps a Jordan Peterson influence. I seem to think mm. that Jordan Peterson speaks about him a lot. But maybe you can explain to us why Nietzsche is so important uh, from a philosophical standpoint. Why does he stand out to you? Well, first on the on the resurgence point, yeah, his uh, his reputation's gone up and down, mostly up over the course of the 20th century. He died in 1900, and I don't think it's an understatement to say that he's the most read and most influential philosopher of the of the 20th century, even though he died in the 1900s. Uh, and the interesting thing about him is that people all over the political spectrum, from uh, you know the liberal capitalists to far right fascists to Marxists, uh, have read and learned from him. People who are 
explicitly atheist and people who are strongly theistic in various communities, Jewish, Christian, and other, have all uh, read and responded to, uh, to Nietzsche. So his influence is, uh, is, is everywhere. Now, what's, what's important about him, though, is that he is one of the few philosophers who has had something fundamental to say on all of the, all of the issues in a fresh and original way. It's very hard in the history of philosophy to say something new, but Nietzsche did. And he also was a great stylist, uh, so he has a way of writing that makes you respond to him. He pushes your buttons not only intellectually, but also emotionally. So some of his more famous uh, phrases are, you know, that which does not kill me, and pretty much all of us can fill in the end of that one, makes me stronger, right? Or the, the admonition to, uh, to live dangerously in one's life, a kind of high romanticism of life that often uh, goes against the cynicism and the world weariness that's characteristic of much of 20th century uh, intellectual life. He also, though, uh, is most notorious for his uh, anti-Christian stance. Uh, uh, Anti-theology, a move toward atheism, was characteristic of the modern world as we became more rational, more scientific. But Christ uh, Nietzsche was one of the very few who also went after Christianity, not simply for having... Uh, and not being able to prove the existence of God and, and requiring faith and so on, but arguing that its moral code with its emphasis on martyrdom and meekness and forgiveness was actually unhealthy and a kind of uh, psychological sickness. So his advocacy of that and, and putting it in a very strong rhetorical form made him a real outlier such that pretty much everybody intellectually needs to engage with him in some form. That's interesting for sure. Um... So I mean, you said something really interesting as well uh, in there about philosophy. You know, it's difficult for philosophy to kind of generate uh, new ideas or icons or ideas that haven't been already been generated. And I hear, I, I see that criticism leveled at the field of philosophy quite a lot. It's sometimes thrown into the kind of, I suppose, the same bracket as theology in that sense, in the mm. sense that, you know, we have this pantheon of knowledge and it seems to be that new philosophies are just kind of reinterpretations of the old classics. And I suppose, I mean, first of all, would you say that's true? And second, what what kind of draws you to the world of um, philosophy, knowing that, it, you know, there, there are, it feels almost like a closed avenue in many senses? Yeah, no, I think it's fair to say that all of the major possibilities philosophically were staked out by the Greeks, you know, they were just you know, brilliant 2,500, 2,400 years ago. So there's a reason we all know the names Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, and so on. Uh, and so uh, one, I think this is not a true, but one way of characterizing philosophy is to say that one is then working on variations within those very broad traditions. And every generation needs to rediscover those traditions. I think it's part of the natural development of a an intelligent, open-minded young person to think about all of the important issues. And uh, 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 you'll come to the same issues that human beings who have been thoughtful will always come to and uh, adopt one of, or more of those positions. At the same time, I don't think that philosophy has been stagnant uh, because uh, it, what has happened in the history of philosophy is uh, questions that were unanswerable. People were banging their heads against them and trying all sorts of alternatives for centuries suddenly uh, someone would have a new wrinkle on it and things would go off in a significant direction. So in the early modern for world, for example, the, the more naturalistic investigations, the idea that we can study the world with our senses and do experimental methods, 
that was a, a new idea, systematic, and that's what made possible the development of modern science. So what we call physics and chemistry and biology and even psychology now is distinct sciences did not used to be sciences. They were still matters of philosophical speculation, but we worked at them until we found a, a lever, so to speak, or a hook to be able to finally start doing them in a more scientific fashion. And then great progress has been made. So the residual set of questions that we're still banging our heads against and having all of the debates about uh, the attitude then is, well, we need to keep working at it. So uh, uh, eventually we will get that hook and make the progress. Yeah, that's a great way of looking at it. And I mean, what, what, how can we use the teachings of Nietzsche today? I mean, how are they, how are they most commonly applied? I mean, it's like we, we mentioned at the start of the conversation, the, it's the, you know, the, the popularity of his work mm. just done nothing but grow really. So, I mean, what, how, what can we look at uh, to be used uh, in, you know, today in 2024 that Nietzsche yeah. was a proponent yeah. of? Well, uh, yeah, that's a good question, but I think uh, it's all over the map and it really will depend on what part of Nietzsche you are interested in. Probably the most common uh, uh an interesting part of nietzsche is the one when people read nietzsche for the first time and you're a young person you're smart you're you're trying to figure everything out about the world you want to do something significant with your life nietzsche seems like a kindred spirit to you because he is high romantic life is adventure life is conflict go out and 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 be the best person that you can be don't let all kinds of irrational conventions and uh, any mediocrities and cowardices that you see all around you stop you from being the best best version of yourself. So that's one that version. Like a motivational of, speaker, isn't he? Oh, yeah, that absolutely. yeah, that's right. He's, yeah. he's, he's probably the most motivational philosopher speaker of the 20th century. There's a couple of others we could mention, but he would be in the uh, in the top three. Now, then I think it depends what parts of Nietzsche, uh, more specifically though, uh, when you ask, well, what does this great adventure of life consist in? And then different parts of Nietzsche speak to uh, other people. Some people will want to say that the, the right reading of Nietzsche is to say that Nietzsche has said that all of the traditional ideas of truth have been exploded. And the right answer is that there is no such thing as truth. And so what you need to do is just believe, so to speak, your own inner truth and create whatever you want, however destructive that can needs to be with respect to other people, their agendas, and even their lives, and using other people's. So you can have a certain kind of master morality type of person who's willing then to see as their great life adventure, conquering other people and taking their stuff uh, as a, and using Nietzsche as an excuse to, uh, to to becoming a kind of ubermensch or a kind of Superman, or uh, to see uh, it as uh, going after all of the old religions and philosophies of the past and being an iconoclast uh, that you see your project as Nietzsche often did as poking uh, holes in other people's uh, uh, puncturing their balloons pointing out their hypocrisies and all of the dark psychological motivations and so you have the kind of person who then is a Nietzschean cynic but uh, is nearly not very much fun at a party because he's always attacking people and pointing out the hypocrisies and, and and looking for a darker story underlying everything and that also comes out of out of uh, nietzsche paradoxically much of the far left right now uh, adopts a certain kind of nietzschean so if you think about postmodernism and it's uh, and it's uh, it's kind of nihilistic streak many of the postmodernists will say that they are doing a reading of nietzsche but they're putting uh, nietzsche in the service of a kind of far left politics and then also, even more notoriously, uh, the, the Nazis 
the National Socialists, the, the, the major intellectual leadership and the political leadership all saw themselves as disciples of Nietzsche. And so they took certain things of his political and some of his philosophical views and took them in, a, in that particular philosophical direction. So one of the things about Nietzsche is that he is, uh, I don't want to say he's all over the map, but uh, there are elements in Nietzsche that almost anybody with any agenda can find and use to <laughs> use to their purposes. I mean, talking of the far left, though, I mean, it just it makes me think about the way that historical figures are now often filtered through the norms of our time. And, yeah. you know, people are, uh, are chastised that are no longer with us for, quote unquote, problematic language or views they had. And they, they're often, you know, there's often calls for them to be removed from the this, uh, the syllabus or not taught in academic settings sure. and things like that. Has sure. Nietzsche, into your mind, ever kind of fell uh, foul of campaigns of this sort? Well, yeah, Nietzsche would have nothing but disgust for uh, cancel culture. He would see it as a kind of cowardice, and it is a kind of cowardice. Anytime you say, oh, that hurts my feelings, right, or that view uh, offends me in some way, and so your only reaction is to try to get the person, you know, get a mob of people together and hide in the crowd and wear a mask and get that person. That's, those are the tactics of people who are intellectual and, and moral cowards, and Nietzsche would have you know, nothing but, but disdain for them. You know, his view is that life is about conflict, life is about suffering, life is about uh, finding great adversaries and making the and engaging with those great adversaries because they're going to make you be a better version of yourself. So in that sense, he's the opposite of, of cancel culture. But there are then other parts of Nietzsche that the cancel culture words uh, will use. They use some, some of the, uh, uh, you know, there is no such thing as truth. Everything is just a power struggle, and we're just using our tools of power, the ones that we happen to have. So that's a kind of Nietzscheanism Sounds as very well. Postmodern. Yes, no, absolutely is postmodern. So, yeah, that uh, the, yeah, the double standard that is characteristic of postmodern, where you will claim to be you know, against oppression, against violence, and so on, but you're quite happy to oppress and violent, be violent when you have the tools of power at your, at your disposal. That, uh, that hypocrisy would rankle someone like Nietzsche. He, Nietzsche would say, if you're going to stick someone, a knife in someone, stick it facing the person. Don't stick them in the back. Right? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so he's much more confrontational and honest, at least in, in his uh, confrontationalism. Okay, that's a great answer. And uh, something that piques my interest with, with you talking about the fact that he wasn't simply, in regards to religion, rather, he wasn't simply somebody who doubted the, you know, the kind of veracity of the supernatural claims of religion. He, he was, he was more to what it was aligned more towards anti anti theism in the, in the sense that he would say these, even if these ideas are true, they're they're you know they're bad. Uh, and I, I I feel like for someone like me to do that today it would be completely risk free and almost pointless in this kind of Church of England Christian environment that I'm in in the UK, but. Back in the day, those kind of kind of investigations and comments were would have took a fair bit of courage, I would have imagined. Yeah, more so in the in the late nineteenth century. And I think it's it's fair to say uh, German, uh, Nietzsche was a German, and German uh, intellectual culture in the nineteen hundreds was um, uh, it was quite safe to be anti-Christian right at that point. So the debates had been had been engaged. Uh, in the 1700s, it was more risky. In the 1600s, more risky, uh, even even more so. Uh, and so by now, we have uh, not only kind of a culture where people are expected to look at all of the arguments for and against uh, uh, religion, and that, that's uh, kind of an intellectual obligation, 
we've gotten way past uh, any sort of dogmatism. Uh, but also we, we're a culture of tolerance where we have uh, expected people to disagree and uh, leave people free to go their own way religiously. So that was largely in place by the time we got to Nietzsche's, uh, Nietzsche's generation. So uh, it is interesting, though, that he was, uh, unlike most atheists of his time, uh, saying more than just that Christianity is a failed theology, a failed metaphysics, that we don't need to explain the universe by means of God, or we shouldn't tell people just to accept things on faith and be dogmatic. Uh, the really arresting thing in him was his rejection of the idea that Christian morality is good and decent, because even most atheists of the uh, of the 1800s would say, well, at least Christianity has its heart in the right place, right? It's a it's a nice ethic. And it's going to it's about peace and forgiveness and so on. And Nietzsche is having has a, having none of that. He thinks it's a it's a uh, when he pushes it, he, it's a religion of psychological sickness. He uses that language. Uh, you know, the, the kind of person, you know, if, if, uh, I don't know, if you're a male, so I'll, I'll use a kind of a male, male ex example. You know, the idea is some some man just walks up to you and starts insulting you. Right? Well, what should you as a man do? You know, your natural reaction is to say, hey, don't do that. You know, the guy gives you a shove, you shove him back and you will engage in, you know, verbal insults. <laughs> and as kids, we're all supposed to practice uh, our verbal wordplay and learn self-defense so that when we have to fight as sometimes we have to as men. I'm not speaking in my own voice. I'm speaking in a Nietzschean voice here now. <laughs> you're going to stand up for yourself. You're not going to take any crap from anybody. And if necessary, you're going to strive to be the dominant male in order to protect what's yours in, uh, in the world. And Nietzsche says that's all fine. That's all healthy. But what does Christianity do? Well, Christianity says, you know, be more like a lamb. Someone sl smacks you across the face, you're, you're supposed to you know, offer him the other cheek. Someone insults you and trips you and pushes you down, you're supposed to forgive him in some sort of way. So Nietzsche, you know, to use our language just to say, uh, would say that Christianity really is a, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an ethical philosophy for beta males or even gamma <laughs> males. Right? Where it's for weaklings who are rationalizing what they know to be their weakness. So they can't stand up for themselves in the world. The world is going to push them around and they're kind of scared of the world anyway. So they invent this moral code that says, why don't we all you know, be nice to each other and stick together? And uh, it's basically a morality for sheep. And that's the language that, that Nietzsche used. But instead, what human beings need to do is recognize that we are predators. Uh, this is now late 1800s. This is after evolutionary theory, Darwin, survival of the fittest. That's not Darwin's phrase. But we are top apex predators. We got there for a reason. Human evolution is not over. And it's not going to be a morality that says be more like a sheep or be more like a bunny rabbit that's going to advance human beings. It's going to be rather a moral code that prizes aggression and dominance and a willingness to fight for your vision of what the world should be. That's what it is to be a man. That's what it is to be a human being more broadly. That's what's going to take the human being in the next evolutionary direction. That's a good answer. I don't think I've quite heard Christianity interpreted in that way before. The kind of, you know, almost using it as a justification for your own failures uh, as a sort of, uh, you know, alpha male. That's that's really interesting. And I, I suppose what's also interesting to me is, I mean, you've already mentioned in this discussion already that a lot of people will kind of take Nietzsche as their own and claim they understand what he wants and means and that gets you some 
kooky ideas on the far left, some kooky ideas on the far right. Uh, however, you numerous times in this conversation have said, you know, this is what Nietzsche would think, this is what he'd say. How do you know you've got the objective reading uh -huh. of what Nietzsche thought? Well, what we, yeah, what we'd have to do then is get some Nietzschean texts before us and sit down and uh, and 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 read them. So. Um, and that would be then part of my my intellectual <laughs> obligation. So when I say Nietzsche would say this, here's the passage from Nietzsche that supports my my that, and you can argue with me or agree with me, and uh, I think I could make a pretty good case. <laughs> Fair enough. So I mean, how important is philosophy on on campuses now to a new generation? Just in the sense of the you know the dialect, the way of getting conversations going, the way of in get, investigating our thoughts and kind of trying to discover how we know what we do know, rather than just sort of regurgitating dogma. I mean, I suppose what I'm getting, guys, how how important is it in fostering the idea that we should be more open to debate and opposing views? Yeah. Well, I think it should be very important for exactly the reasons you just articulated right so well. You know, philosophy, I think, is fundamentally our set of tools for developing our worldviews. And as, as human beings, we need to do that, to have an articulate working through about what we think the world is, how we're going to use our minds, what values we're going to commit to, what we're going to take the meaning of our lives to be uh, and, and to go for it. That's what the philosophical project is. Uh, but also uh, in your in your your question, though, you're asking on campuses today and philosophy is in a decline phase institutionally right now, fewer majors. Uh, so philosophers are being laid off and not being hired on a fairly regular basis. Enrollments have been declining significantly in in philosophy courses. There's a few reasons for that. One, I think, is not so much. Uh, due to philosophy itself, I think that uh, a lot of people are not willing to go into debt or to spend a significant amount of time in what they see as an uncertain economy. They want to uh, get a degree that they're pretty sure is going to lead to uh, a job shortly thereafter. Uh, and philosophy is a harder sell uh, to, uh, to 18 and 19 year olds and their parents when, when they're making that kind of decision. I think also though, Perhaps a more important factor has been an internal to uh, uh, to philosophy factor. You mentioned postmodernism, for example, and philosophy has been in a somewhat skeptical phase. Uh, if I scale out for the last hundred years, the last fifty years or so, and if philosophy and, and, and to, to the extent of committing a kind of suicide, where you have a significant number of leading philosophers saying we have no answers, right? There are no answers. We don't think there even is such a thing as philosophy as a discipline. And that leads to a kind of self-dissolution and postmodernism comes out of that intellectual tradition. And it's kind of a natural, uh, <laughs> if that's your marketing pitch, we have no answers. This is not <laughs> going to be useful to you. And people will listen to you and say, well, I'm, then I'm going to go and study something that is in fact more useful. And uh, so there's been a, a students marching with their feet into other majors for that reason as well. Yeah, that's not great PR, is it? I suppose. So, I mean, harking back to this, because I'm really fascinated with, I was speaking to a guest previously, I, I was at university quite some time ago, I'm nearly 40 now, and there was almost an attitude of anything goes, you know, it was almost, the you know, you was almost propelled to be as edgy as possible to the point mm. where that was boring and normal 
you know uh, and now it seems to be a kind of almost like a self-censorship uh kind of attitude for younger people on campus there's a kind of resurgence of banning certain words even calls for banning certain books yep. and things like that and i'm just kind of wondering how how much this feeds into academic freedom in the in the field of philosophy to investigate things openly because obviously philosophy will take you to very kind of niche esoteric and very taboo and controversial topics sometimes. And, and I'm just wondering how, how difficult that climate may be. Yeah, that's right. No, exactly. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. how difficult has, the, has that has philosophy, its open investigation, been made by the current climate of a sort of self-censorship? No, I think you're exactly right that there has been a generational cultural shift. So when you were younger, when I was younger, yeah, the ethos of higher education was very much the, uh, the liberal education ideal. That is to say, you should be a free thinker. And you should think about everything important and you should be willing to entertain outlandish ideas. And outlandish ideas actually do a service to you because they, they uh, shake you out of your complacent zone and they make you figure out what you really do know from what you don't, don't really know. Uh, and so having an atmosphere in which uh, all of the weird ideas are going to be out there, including all of the established ideas and students are going to be encouraged to go through that process. That is the, uh, the liberal uh, education ethos. What has happened, though, is uh, I think the, the story is more complicated this, but there has been a resurgence of a kind of authoritarianism that has come out. Once you believe, uh, as uh, postmoderns will tell you, that there are no answers, there are no truths, we're not rational beings, that logic is just an invention of, say, white uh, male supremacists and so forth, then what you do is you have a different ethos that says we should not then try to be rational and logical and look at both sides of a debate. Instead, we will take a, a kind of Nietzschean theme and say everything just is power. Everything just is struggle. So what you should do is just take whatever your value agenda is and uh, enter into the fray and try to impose your agenda on everyone else. That's the new ethos. It's not a liberal education discussion, debate, everything, and make up your own mind. It's to see the world as divided into groups that have different agendas that cannot be rationally uh, uh, um, debated and decided upon. And so all we can do is, uh, is have this power struggle. And as it's happened, some groups have been more organized and uh, better strategists in that power struggle. They've gotten themselves in a position then to be able to shut down views that they disagree with and not allow them to be spoken so that only their views can be uh, uh, on, on the university platforms. Yeah, and there seems to be a, a very, very much a, an aspect of controlling language as well, what words mean. I don't know if yeah. you, obviously you'll be, be familiar with this, this term dog whistle. I often hear now that when people call for sort of diversity of thought or, you know, uh, freedom of expression, these are, these are termed as dog whistles for the far right now. Mm. So, I, I mean... I suppose what I'm trying to get at is like, are universities in the States doomed? Because I get very deeply concerned uh, for, for by a lot of the things I'm, I'm seeing coming out of campus in terms of, you know, student yeah. movements and, you know, uh, people, academics getting in serious trouble for, for saying things that were fairly uncontroversial a whole yeah. five minutes ago. Right. No, I think I, I think doomed is too strong. I think we are in a serious fight. I think uh, many professors and many students who've learned from those professors are seriously irresponsible. They're actually you know, anti-intellectual, anti-activists, and they have significant platforms at many universities right now. And part of it is exactly this 
dog whistle stuff where you reinterpret uh, uh, language that you don't like uh, in, in politicized terms, like calling uh, something that is in fact a neutral term. We should have debates about important things, just dismissing that in an ad hominem way as coming from a particular part of the uh, uh, political spectrum that you don't uh, you don't happen to like. And all of that is, uh, it's intellectually dishonest, but it is a, a useful power play. Uh, and uh, language does have its power. And those who have been able to use language more effectively have uh, have more power in a place like a university, which is largely largely language driven. But I don't think we are doomed. I think because uh, you know, we're having conversations like this, and now uh, you know, a, a generation ago, people didn't realize they had this institutional shift that had gone on in the ethos. And so the the new cultural authoritarians, the new dictators of language and so forth were put, getting themselves into positions of power uh, in somewhat stealthy fashion and people were not aware of it, but they now are aware of it. So we are having huge national and international conversations about exactly this issue. People are getting up to speed. Many of the uh, the uh, the counselor or counselors rather uh, who are in positions of power are retiring. Various student groups are being moved. Many universities are starting to reaffirm their freedom of speech platforms uh, uh, as a result of this. Uh, in many cases, uh, this is more in the United States, uh, where many of the universities are kept going by million dollar donations from their alumni. Those checks are not being written anymore, and people are paying attention to those checks not being written. Students are not majoring in the worst of the uh, academic disciplines. They're taking courses in other areas. So I think the, the reaction is, uh, is proceeding apace, and there will be significant, uh, significant reform. The other thing I'm also encouraged by, though, is that we're in a very entrepreneurial phase now with respect to education. There are lots of new colleges being founded. Uh, online uh, and actual traditional bricks and mortar ones with new pedagogies, and some of them are explicitly uh, being formed. People putting you know millions of dollars, millions of pounds into these institutions because the traditional institutions are failing, and they're giving people an alternative. So there's a healthy marketplace of ideas and marketplace of uh, higher educational institutions that is starting to develop partly into reaction to that. And I think all of that is is good. You've turned me around again. I'm no longer I'm no longer on the side side of doom mongering. You've, you've convinced <laughs> me, Stephen. I'm an optimist in this area now. I suppose okay. uh, I in the time that, be, be sorry, worried but cautiously optimistic. That's my stance. That's, that's that's a good that's a good rule of thumb. I mean, say for instance, if somebody is not uh, familiar with Nisha, what would be a good entry point for them? What what mm. should they pick up? What should they look at? Ah, that's a, that's a very good question. I like to say maybe the genealogy of morals. Uh, genealogy of morals. It's three essays that he collected together after he wrote a book called Beyond Good and Evil, which has a very sexy title. That's the one most people typically gravitate to uh, first. But I would say go with the immediate follow-up book, Genealogy of Moral, which presents the same themes a little more systematically, a little more clearly, and then go from there. That's great, Stephen. This has flown by. I've really enjoyed speaking to you. I've learned a lot as well, which is always which is always good for me from a selfish point of view. Uh, where can people find uh, more of your work and more about you? Well, my website stephenhicks.org. I publish there, and uh, my center uh, CEE video channel. We have a YouTube channel where I have lectures and podcasts and guest speakers and so on. So, I would say yeah, CEE video channel or stephenhicks.org. 
Excellent. Stephen, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for speaking to us. All right. See you next time, hopefully. Bye Cheers, for now. Take care. Bye. Very smart chap. I'll uh, be definitely checking out his YouTube channel and his reading recommendations. Uh, we should be bringing in our last guest for the evening. An absolute cracker. Big topic. It's only Dr. Sean Das returning. How are you doing? Yeah, not too bad. Thank you, Mr. Knight. How are you doing? It's been a while. Wonderful. Thank you. It's nice to see you. It's been a I think it's third or fourth time maybe we've spoke now. Yeah, yeah. Last I time was quite a few months ago, wasn't it? Was it? Yeah, yes. Yeah. So we should we should do this when you don't write, you don't call. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ghosting you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, so obviously, uh, you know, uh, dedicated viewers of the show will be well familiar with your work and your output and your your eloquent uh, understanding of uh, all things uh, psychology. Uh, maybe you could just let people know uh, what it is you do for the people who are not familiar with your work. Sure. Yeah. So I am a forensic psychiatrist. So I also work as an expert witness, <clears throat> which means I assess and rehabilitate people who have severe mental illnesses, who've committed quite serious crimes. So when this whole case, Calacani, the Nottingham stabbing occurred, this is very much, you know, uh, very much down my street. I've given evidence in these kinds of cases and I've got so much to say about it. So I just thought I had to reach out to, to you guys and to Sean. This is great. Yeah, I'm so glad that you're here to talk about this because I mean we we've spoke about this before. And there's obviously a lot of stigma about around about you know mental health, a kind of big misunderstanding about schizophrenia in general. Now a lot of people will be looking at this case now and seeing just seeing the words mental illness or you know uh, the fact that he had serious issues and saying, well, obviously this is this is what this is where it leads. It's violence. This is where mental health issues always leaves. Certainly schizophrenia. What what can you say about that? Because obviously there is an undeniable link between mental health issues and violence but it's not the whole story is it yeah so what i would say stephen is that the vast vast majority of people with schizophrenia are not dangerous uh, in fact they're more likely to hurt themselves so about 10 percent of people with schizophrenia end up killing themselves uh, or to be the victims of crime but if in cases exactly like this like calacanes if they happen to have symptoms that are directly linked to potential violence so to be specific he was hearing voices command hallucinations telling him to kill people and he was reportedly suffering from these paranoid delusions where he believed that he had to hurt people otherwise something bad would happen to him and his family so if they've got those very specific symptoms which is rare then they can be extremely dangerous and i suppose my view as a forensic psychiatrist as opposed to a general psychiatrist is maybe a little bit skewed because that's exactly the kind of cases that I'm uh, asked to assess. So, I mean, what, at what point does something like that tip over into violence? Are there any, I suppose what people are really asking, aren't they? Is the, there's always a sort of 2020 hindsight bias aspect to these cases where people say, how was he able to do that? We should have been stopped at point A, B and C beforehand. Uh, yeah. And I'm just wondering, it, it, does that argument play well for you, looking at the, the the facts of the case? Do you think there were some legitimate failings in that sense? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm happy to answer that. I don't think my answer is going to be very popular because I think you kind of indicated this yourself. People want there to, 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 people would like, it is more comfortable to think that this was very predictable and it shouldn't have happened and services should have stepped in and it was preventable, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, my honest answer is from my clinical experience, obviously I'm, I'm, nobody's denying what he did was absolutely horrific, but I don't think there were that many red warning flags, right? I do, to go back a bit, I do think there were gaps in his care. So the very fact that Calacane was admitted to hospital several on several occasions, three or four times, I think, and then discharged within a 
relatively short period of time and then was readmitted and, and kept becoming unwell again to me suggests that there was a gap in the system you know he should have been followed up possibly should have been um detained for a longer period of time um i, I don't know because i've not seen the medical reports but i suspect that maybe he wasn't fully well when he was leaving hospital it's either that or he was fully well but he was stopped taking his medication in which case you could argue that there should have been more work to help him develop his insight so he'd actually take his medication so i believe all of these things are true but and this is the controversial bit his level of violence before uh, the horrific stabbings wasn't actually that high. There was an assault against a police officer and there's an, another sort of side argument that the police should have and could have arrested him because, as you may know, there was a warrant out for his arrest for about nine months before the, the, the Nottingham stabbings. But that level of violence, police uh, assault on a police officer, is actually not that uncommon. So I'll, I'll, to, I'll put it in a, a specific perspective. I work in a court diversion scheme, right? So I work in a, in a criminal court in London. And that presentation of somebody who's recently assaulted a police officer is not unusual. If I saw yeah. that coming across my case, I wouldn't think, oh my God, this guy is completely dangerous. He's going to go out and, and kill multiple people. I would think he's one of 10 people that I've seen this week that are roughly the same risk profile as him. So that's a scary thing to say, but that, that is the truth from my clinical experience. That's really interesting. And, and this is my fault. I think I've got ahead of the story here without kind of laying out, out the specifics. So maybe as best you can just explain what this individual did. Why is this big news in our country at the moment? Sure. Uh, so the man is called Kalakane, uh, and he had he, he definitely had a history of mental illness. So as I, I mentioned before, he has a diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia. Just very briefly, uh, schizophrenia isn't, as some people assume, anything to do with split personalities. Schizophrenia is a tendency towards periods of psychosis. A period of psychosis is when you step out of reality, usually in the form of hallucinations, so hearing voices, or delusions like paranoid thoughts. Kalakane had, had definitely had both of those things. Uh, and he was admitted a few times to hospital in the previous years, discharged fairly quickly. There was lots of clearly psychotic behaviour. So the reason I'm saying this is because if any of your viewers uh, are thinking that, you know, this is something that he made up or tried to, tried to push his own agenda, or was trying to you know, cheat the system, basically, I don't think that's the case because there was lots of very bizarre behavior about a year before the attacks he went to mi5 demanding that they stop controlling him he tried to hand himself in um there was really paranoid behavior about traveling for miles sitting outside his family home and refusing to come in and thinking that people are going to die so the point i'm trying to make is he was in my mind very psychotic for a very long period of time and then he tragically went on this rampage on the 13th of june i believe uh, 2023 and he stabbed and killed three completely innocent people and then got a van and tried to run over uh, i think it's another three people so uh, murder attempted murder the reason Stephen, it's it's well, apart from the horrific nature of what happened, the reason it's so controversial is because many people think that he got an easy option because he got a finding of diminished responsibility. So not murder, but manslaughter because of his schizophrenia. And he got a hospital order. So he's going to spend many years, possibly the rest of his life in a high secure hospital rather than go to prison. Family are really upset about it. And, and, and I think a lot of the members of the public are also upset about it. Yeah. And obviously you would expect the family to be upset about it. They've lost people very near and dear to them and they would want the mass, maximum possible punishment and sentence. I think that that would come closer to justice in their mind. So, I mean, uh, but we kind of have to, uh, in the kind of uh, like a, you know, a very clinical way, put that to the side for a moment. And because it's a very emotive and not necessarily objective perspective. Do you think this decision was a, a, a fair one given all the particulars? 
Yeah, uh, I absolutely think it was. I, look, I completely sympathise with the family. I can understand, you know, they've been, they feel so victimised and wrong and they are that they probably want him to suffer like they've suffered and, and like the victim suffered. But purely clinically, so if you look at the medico-legal um, definitions, so completely take out emotion, take out any, my own personal sense of justice, forget all of that. If you just look at the medico-legal criteria for diminished responsibility, um, I'll, I'll read out some of the criteria. So you have to have an abnormality of mental functioning. He clearly did. He had schizophrenia, which arose from medic a recognized medical condition. So that's important because it has to be because of an mental illness. It can't be somebody who happened to have schizophrenia, but attacked people randomly because of rage or because he was insulted or, you know, uh, in an argument with a lover. It has to be due to a recognized medical condition and it substantially impaired his ability or the defendant's ability to do one of three things either understand the nature of their conduct and he probably did understand what he was doing because you know he bought a knife he tried to evade the police so that probably wasn't um, impaired form a rational judgment i think he did struggle to form a rational judgment because he was hearing these voices and because he had these delusions compelling him to to kill random people and to exercise self-control and again i think he had a problem exercising self-control so that's a long convoluted way of saying that he did meet quite clearly i think um the medical legal criteria for dim diminished responsibility i do these cases all the time sometimes there's gray areas sometimes there's a bit of evidence either way sometimes it's not very clear to me and again i, I keep repeating myself to take out a Emotions just on the medical legal criteria, he clearly fits diminished responsibility. So, I mean, I'm just probably straying stupidly into a philosophical realm here a little bit, but I suppose it kind of ties into this idea of free will. So, I suppose the diminished responsibility argument would kind of suggest that, you know, his, his mental illness was responsible and he really didn't, you know, he, he can't be held as responsible as somebody who wasn't mentally ill, who'd committed a similar crime. Now, I suppose, where do you fall on this this uh, issue of free will? Because a lot of people who don't really recognise the existence of free will would say, well, there's not really much difference between somebody who's been uh, deemed to have a mental illness and therefore diminished responsibility versus someone who just went to murder somebody because they pissed him off or they didn't like him. They, you know, it depends how, where, they, where you fall on this uh, free will argument, I suppose. Yeah. So my answer, the way I'd answer that question is let's take the two extremes and then let's let's take what I think his case is. So let's have one person on one extreme who did know exactly what they're doing, who went out with the intention to kill somebody who is just, you know, a born a vile, evil person uh, who might not have any mental illness. Maybe they do have schizophrenia in the background, but maybe the schizophrenia is completely irrelevant. Everybody, myself included, thinks that that person should get a murder charge. There's, there's no there's no doubt there. Let's take the other extreme of the spectrum. So there is, I, I mentioned diminished responsibility, which is what he got, Kalakane. There's another psychiatric defense, which is not guilty by reason of insanity, right? So as the name suggests, that means that you're completely not guilty. So you're completely exonerated. And that doesn't mean there's, there's no consequences. You might still end up going to hospital still possibly for the rest of your life. But in the eyes of the law, you are not guilty, hence not guilty by reason of insanity. The, medic, the threshold for that is much, much higher. So that means the person either didn't know what they were doing at all, they didn't understand that they were physically stabbing somebody, or they didn't know it was wrong, uh, legally wrong. Kalakane, I think, did know those things because he knew he was going to prison. He, he did try and evade the police. Uh, so that is those are the two ends of the spectrum. You've got somebody with a clear mental illness who has no free will at all, and you have somebody who has absolute free will and mental illness is either not there or is not relevant. But Kalakane is somewhere in the middle. So he's diminished responsibility. So again, as the, as the name suggests, it means he is held responsible, but his responsibility is less. So he's not completely 
blameless, so he's not completely, um, it's not felt that he completely didn't understand his actions, but at the same time, his overall ability to understand his actions was diminished. And I think that if he, because he had this mental illness and because the, the reason I, I'm saying this relatively confidently, and again, I'm taking out morality out here, uh, is that the number of psychiatrists from both sides got the same symptomatology from him. They elicited the fact that he had these delusions. So another way of saying that is that from what I've read, if he didn't have that mental illness, then he wouldn't have been compelled to carry out those killings. That's a good answer. And I suppose, does, I mean, does this whole thing, I mean, the, the interest in it, is it because we can, uh, the big interest or the larger interest in this one particular uh, murderer, uh, killer rather, um, I mean, is there a bigger interest in this because it kind of parallels what we've seen for years now in terms of jihadist attacks? You know, it's almost a textbook carbon copy of like a, a frenzied stabbing attack uh, a vehicle attack rolled into one i think that uh, the people had you know people went mad on social media as as it was originally being reported that it was a terrorist attack and now we're being told that this man's mentally ill does, does this in a way play into a lot of conspiracy theories you usually find on the right about covering up terrorist attacks and, and, and filing them under the um the um sort of moniker of mental illness and and, and if so Perhaps it might be worth just explaining how that's not really a thing people can just pin. There are obviously uh, levels to meet, you know, trained clinicians that have to make these determinations. Yeah. So um, I I think that it's fair to say that there, that I think the sympathy for the perpetrator, Kalakane, or the understanding of this kind of situation where you use a psychiatric defense is very much dependent on how the public perceives the particular offence. So another way of saying that, Stephen, is that, is that you know, again, I'm not, I'm not in any way trying to um, un undermine or minimise the impact of what he did. It's horrific. Nobody, myself, nobody is disagreeing with that. But I suppose the point I'm trying to make is, I think there is some crimes and some killers, some perpetrators that are judged more by society than others. So another way of saying that is, I wonder if, if she, if the killer was not, you know, this, this sort of black immigrant man, young man, but say like a vulnerable young woman, I wonder whether people would have the same kind of vitriol against the fact uh, uh, towards him, uh, towards them as an individual and the same kind of disappointment in the legal system for allowing a diminished responsibility. So I, I really generally do think that that's part of it. Um, I know that sounds like quite a bold thing to say, but I just put that into context. I uh, I have been on Talk TV a few times. I was on like Vanessa Feltz's show, and uh, and the, there's clips of of what I've said, and I've said pretty much the same thing as I'm saying to you. And if you read the comments underneath, they're very very uh, intense. They're quite right wing. Some of them are quite racist. And there's basically oh really yeah yeah. And I think they're, they're basically and it's fine. You know, I put myself out in the media. I'm a big boy. I can take it. But basically, there's there's a thought process that I because I'm an ethnic minority that I'm protecting somebody of an ethnic minority. So I think there's an, un, I don't think it's representative of all society, but I think there's an undercurrent of, of, of judging him particularly because of his ethnicity. Um, to your point of terrorist attacks, I mean, that's it's a completely different kettle of fish. It might look the same to the untrained eye. Uh, and some people might think that all terrorists are mentally ill because they don't understand their motivations, their behaviors. But crucially, a terrorist, a terrorist knows what they're doing. They know what they're doing is wrong. Uh, even in their own warped head, they might have their justifications. They're not compelled. They're in control of their actions. They're not compelled by mental illness, by voices, by paranoid delusions. That's a that's a great answer. I suppose some people would just do, I think would would 
I, I struggle to get people to understand this sometimes when I'm trying to explain that, you know, not all suicide bombers are mentally ill. Some of them are, per, you know, they're, in their, they're actually running a very rational kind of calculation or kind of, kind of software in their brain for what they're doing in the sense that they can tell you exactly why they're doing it, doing what they hope to happen. And it's it's logically, logically consistent. So how do we how do you best kind of separate mental illness from like really extreme behavior? that would most people would look at and go that that's you know not to be too insensitive but mental that's crazy that's that's indicative of mental illness whereas in reality it actually isn't yeah so it's complicated uh, you know that's why you need expert witnesses and as i said i think this particular case Kalakani, is relatively black and white but there are definitely cases that i've worked on where the answer is not clear and you've had opposing sides and you know i've had to give evidence in court either for the defense or the prosecution so the point being that even the experts sometimes find some cases hard to, to to definitively decide whether somebody's mentally ill but to answer your question it depends how you define mental illness. If you define it as doing something that nobody else could do or would do, then almost anybody that commits any kind of horrific violence, whether it's you know domestic violence, sexual violence, defending against children, terrorism, any of those things, is mental illness by that definition, which is not helpful because then what's the point of calling it mentally ill if if you know almost anybody fits that category? There's the psychiatrist definition, so my definition, which would be they have to have a recognized mental illness like a psychosis we recognize symptoms and the symptoms are not just extreme beliefs the symptoms are delusional beliefs so believing that one there's one true religion and non-believers should die is not psychosis but believing that and I'm, I'm giving a specific example of a case that i've seen relatively recently give it if a mother believes that her child has been possessed by like demons and has to end that child's life to save them from hell for example that is psychosis, you know, or if somebody's hearing a voice and they like Calacane, if they're hearing a voice and they feel compelled to listen to that voice, because if they don't, then the world will end. That is, you know, that is mental illness. So it's all about the, the actual symptomatology, not just the beliefs. And then the final thing I'd say, Stephen, is that there's the layman's, layman's definition of mental illness is the psychiatrist, but the, probably the most important one is the legal aspect, the judge's uh, criteria, which is what I said before. Did they know what they were doing and did they know what they were doing was wrong? So if a terrorist knew actively knew that they were putting on a suicide vest and if they knew it was le legally wrong, so not morally, but legally wrong, so they knew it's against the law to end somebody's life, then by definition, they have the insanity plea. So very good answer as always, Shaham. And I just want to get background to this, you know, this Calacani idea of paranoid schizophrenia being accepted as the, uh, the reason for his crimes. And I, I suppose people will be wondering, how does that explain what he did? I mean, what, what, did he attempt to give any sort of justification that made sense? Because I think when something horrifics happen like this, something so tragic and horrible, people want a, you know an airtight answer. They demand explanations, and, and rightly so. But obviously, we, we rarely get a one that's uh, that'll satisfy that's sufficient. But how, how would how does you know paranoid schizophrenia explain this in any way? Sure. Uh, so uh, again, I just wanted to make the point that the vast majority of people that have paranoid schizophrenia and the symptoms they have don't lead to this level of violence. This is exceptionally rare. Uh, and I, I was obviously not assessed Calacane in person, but I've read uh, everything that's in, in the press about what was what happened in his court case so the other psychiatrist he gave evidence um and he he consistently reported that he was hearing voices telling him that he needed to kill people or his family would be hurt um and as i said before there was previous 
there was previous psychotic behavior. He tried to surrender to MI5, uh, went to MI5 headquarters trying to surrender. He believes that they were taking photos of him. He was saying things like, stop controlling me. This was, this was like a year before uh, the, the stabbing. So it's not like he did it, you know, a couple of days before because he's trying to pre preemptively make an excuse. This, this is a, there's a long history of this. Um, he... He also, on top of the voices, he told another psychiatrist that he felt this like psychotic pressure to kill people. Some otherwise something atrocious would happen to his family. So there was the, these particular symptoms. Uh, I think directly led or influenced his violence. Okay, and I think one of the details that was revealed uh, and released to the public was that he was actually on medication uh, for for mental health. I'm not sure if there was antipsychotics. I'm not sure if you know what they are, but uh, they were found at his, his residence and they'd not been taken. And I just wanted to get your opinion on what what kind of medication could somebody be prescribed for paranoid schizophrenia, and how would it work, and how successful is it in kind of mitigating some of the most extreme symptoms. Yeah. Uh, so good question. So it, uh, it, uh, from what I've read in the newspapers, it doesn't say what medication was on, but I'm almost 100% sure that there will be some sort of antipsychotic medication because that's that's what you give for schizophrenia. Um, and people not taking their medication, so non-compliance in our patient group is, is very common and it's probably one of the biggest hurdles to treat individuals with schizophrenia. And the reason they don't take the medication, Stephen, is, is often they don't have insight. So they don't believe that they're mentally unwell. Um, there are some people with schizophrenia or psychosis that do believe that, but from my experience, it, it's because they've gone through the system of, of being admitted to hospital again and again and again. And so that it's not that they necessarily, they still believe the symptoms that they're experiencing are real, but they've learned over time that they can't be real. It's a bit like, um, you know, that film, Beautiful Mind? Yes, Russell Crowe. Uh, yes, Russell Crowe. Uh, it's been a while since I've seen it, but I'm sure there's a scene towards the end where he realizes that what he sees must be delusions because the little girl doesn't get any older. Ah, about? okay. Yes. It's been a while I mean, too. <laughs> so obviously that's a dramatic version of it, but it's but when, when patients do get insights like that, it's not that their experience is really less real to them. It's because they've figured it out over time that it can't be real because everyone else, it's not real to anybody else. But anyway, I'm getting sidetracked. So that's one reason that they lack insights. They don't believe they've got, they, they've got an illness where they need to take medication. And probably more important than that is the side effects. So antipsychotics, unfortunately, are not nice medicines to take they almost well not almost all of them give you side effects from uh, like movement dyskinesias so like movement disorders shakiness stiffness uh, you can put on a lot of weight drowsiness dribbling for some of them and they can give you like cardiac arrhythmias they increase the risk of your heart attacks they're not nice medicines to take and you have to take these you know potentially for the rest of your life or if not for many years so I, I completely get why some people don't take their medication in Kalakani's case when he wasn't taking it that's that's again very common you know and there's all this chat about doing all this uh, about the NHS trust having these investigations and blah 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 and I'm all for it but I can tell you now what they're going to find because it's the same as we have in all our patients it's not it's not news to psychiatrists um, there is a kind of a potential solution around it which is a depot so a depot antipsychotic medication is an injection right so instead of having to take a tablet once a day which a patient can fake spit out just not take they go to their nurse so if they're in the community they go to their nurse it's usually either every two weeks or every week depending on the on the type of depot and they get an injection so then you know the medication is in them for that entire month and you know if they're not taking it because they're not turning up to clinic but there is a human rights issue i know a lot of people listening to this will say well you know screw the human rights if it's somebody as dangerous as calicane then they they it doesn't matter what side effects they're getting they need this medication which is i can understand the perspective but we also have to bear in mind that for every one calicane there's probably another hundred patients out there who are not dangerous and you know who, who won't go on to do anything like this 
uh, and they would quite reasonably have issues about being sort of forced this medication against their will that damages them physically. That's a, that's a great answer. And I suppose that there will be a lot of um, renewed conversations, obviously, about mental health services in the UK, uh, a lot of finger pointing as well. And I just wanted to get an, an objective view from somebody who would have a good handle on this about the state of our you know, mental health services in the UK. I mean, what are the biggest challenges that faces uh, mental health care in the UK? I mean, is it, is it a funding issue? Is it a, you know, a, an expertise issue? Is it a, a resources issue? Where, where are the kind of bottlenecks, do you think? So I think from my clinical experience that I would say there's two major issues that I come up across all the time, like every single week, or maybe not every week, but at least once a month. Uh, number one is, is the number of psychiatric beds. So to actually get somebody like Calacane into hospital, it's, it's different now that he's he's done what he's done. And, you know, now he's in a high secure unit and he's so high profile. He's going to go to he's I think he's already in hospital now. So I'm not talking about now. I mean, before in the in the lead up to it, when you've got somebody that's a little bit risky, but not but their their level of violence hasn't been huge and they're kind of not complying with medication they're getting ill and they're, they're going into hospital so somebody exactly like him it's really hard to find a psychiatric bed so even as a consultant in in court when I see somebody like that uh, sometimes it takes me two or three days to find a psychiatric bed and that individual has to you know has to keep going back to prison to be remanded until that happens um, almost all trusts are constantly full and they have to discharge somebody to get, to get a bed free so that's number one biggest thing in my view that needs to change and that is a funding issue like everything and number two is the number of staff in the community so again somebody like Calacane will probably have been on a caseload of um there'll be like a nurse or a team of nurses that have to look after I don't know 50 100 patients similar to him and they won't have the time to see them all to supervise them particularly thoroughly in the community uh, and what kind of I was going to say muse and muse is the wrong word what what frustrates me uh and what I kind of roll my eyes at, I guess, is the fact that there's going to be this investigation into the Nottingham NHS Trust. I can promise you the same thing is happening and has happened for years in all NHS trusts across across the country. It's not that Nottingham dealt with this in a particularly poor manner. It's just that the system is so overloaded that there's lots of people like Calacane, not now after the killings, I mean, before the killings, with that level of risk, low level assaults, not fully better. There's hundreds of people like that in every NHS trust across the country. So if the government, if this review says that, you know, it's only a problem in Nottingham, we're going to put some more money into Nottingham, then to me, that's going to be bullshit. You have to re, you have to invest in the entire system, I think. So I suppose just to throw a grenade into the discussion right near the end, a lot of people will say, well, and there'll be the people who are obviously leaning on the fact that this this chap is, I'm not, not, I'm not fully aware of his background. I don't know if he was born here, but they'll, they'll say that. I mean, was he? He was an immigrant, or he's yeah, an he was immigrant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They'll say obviously the, these NHS trusts are already, you know, to bursting point in terms of capacity. Immigration's not helping that, you know. And they'll they they the people kind of focus on his ethnicity in that way and look to immigration and, and reducing that to kind of alleviate the burden on our NHS. Do you do you have any kind of opinion on that sort of thing? Especially now it's going to be obviously brought to the forefront in the, in the you know the next couple of weeks when people are discussing this case yeah i'm not entirely sure how to answer that really i mean uh obviously if there is an immigration problem and if there are people that are coming in illegally and are not being monitored then nobody's supporting that i'm not supporting that but also if there are people who have immigrated who have mental health issues then we need to deal with them not only ethically do we have the resources so we should treat everybody number one but number two if we don't then there's a potential risk that people like Calacane could do something like he did. So it's not just about 
um, sort of being empathetic or showing care towards the individual. It's also about keeping our society safe if we don't. That's a perfectly good answer, full of empathy, which is what I'd expect. And I completely agree with you as well. I was just wondering as well, given what you know about mental health now and, and you know, things uh, like paranoid schizophrenia that can in rare circumstances lead to violent kind of attacks of this sort, has it changed your perspective on what, what would be legitimately termed good and evil? Do you find them terms even useful anymore? Um, so... I, I mean, I, I, obviously, I never use the terms good and evil clinically. But I do use the term psychopath. Um, I, I don't think I can't use psychopath, by the way. Um, psychopathy, antisocial personality disorder, these are the kind of the equivalent terms, I suppose, of evil. So I think absolutely, I, I don't think this case has changed my view. I think I've always had the view that there are some people whose personalities are very aggressive. So completely unrelated to mental illness, who don't have paranoid delusions, but who are just aggressive, impulsive, lack empathy, don't care about the rights of other people, basically quite narcissistic, quite selfish, um, impulsive, lack fear, all of those things predispose individuals to violence. So I suppose that is the... Uh, official sort of jargonistic psychiatric version of calling somebody evil. And I've always believed in that. And I've, and I've worked with people like that and I, I continue to do so. Okay. This might be too big of a question for the minute or so we've got left, but is it possible for someone like Kalakani, someone that far gone to actually come back? Is that a thing that's ever happened in your experience? Someone, you know, struggling with mental health to a degree that they carry out a crime of this nature and then can they come through this and understand what's happened to them? Yes. So I have seen, I've never personally rehabilitated somebody that's carried out three individual stabbings or three stabbings in one go, but I've um, assessed and helped or been part of the process of rehabilitating many, many people, probably you know, over 10, 20, who have killed one individual in a um, in florid psychosis like Calacane uh, and who have got better. Now, another very controversial thing, thing to say in the last minute is that people are talking about him as if he's never going to leave this high secure unit. And I think the judge even said that it's very likely that you'll spend the rest of your life in this in the high secure hospital. But with all due respect, it's not up to the judge. He doesn't have the power to say that. It's up to two, two well, one person and one organization, the person being the forensic psychiatrist that treats him in Ashworth, uh, the high secure hospital, and number two, the Ministry of Justice have to kind of okay any leave or discharge that he might have in the future. Uh, and I think politically, he might, they might not ever let him leave or might not let him leave in for decades because of how big and shocking and controversial and contentious this story has been. But clinically, it's more than possible that he could uh, the symptoms that he had could resolve because he wasn't taking his medication. If he was taking his medication, if he tried two or three different medications and he still had symptoms, which I've also seen in some patients, then I would say this is treatment resistant and he might not ever get better, but he wasn't taking his medication. So there's a, a fairly strong possibility that if he is taking medication, po possibly in depot form, injectable form, like I suggested, he could actually get those symptoms that he had, the voices that he heard, the paranoia can disappear. That happens quite frequently with people with schizophrenia so there seems to be this sort of false narrative that he's going to be in prison in hospital for the rest of his life but clinically he might actually get better and, and i'm not saying again i'm not talking about any sort of ethical consideration i'm just saying that i've seen patients like him lo lots of them who have got better that's a great answer uh excellent insight as always Hamon. it's great to see you uh, as well maybe you can let people know where they can find more of your output 
Sure, it's always a pleasure to speak to you, uh, Stephen. So I've got my YouTube channel, A Psych for Soul Minds, put up videos about once or twice a week. So recently I've done videos about stalking, so my sort of five tips of, of how to deal with a stalker. Uh, I've also done a video, a reaction video to Joe Rogan, who spoke about why he thinks some women fall in love with serial killers. So I've kind of critiqued to that. So just a kind of mishmash of issues related to mental illness and offending. Awesome. Thank you very much. Have a pleasant evening. Hopefully, hopefully see Thanks, you again Stephen. soon. Cheers, Stephen. Always a pleasure. Bye. Bye. Fantastic guest to end this sh excellent l show tonight. Uh, I am going to go to bed. Uh, but before I do that, make sure you check out um, Outward Unleashed. Check out the channel. It's some good stuff on there from previous weeks as well. Sean should be back next week. Normal service should be resumed. You can find my uh, Substack at snight.substack.com. That's where I post all my videos and much of my writing. And thank you very much for your excellent comments and questions this evening. It's been a pleasure. See you next time.